This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you in part by The Great Courses Plus, Blue Apron, and Upside.com. And we're back, partner. First things first, for all of our listeners in Detroit, we're going to be there next week. We're making our first live appearance at Macomb Community College on Thursday, May 4th, as part of their ongoing series entitled Tall Tales and Folklore, Exploring Michigan's Traditional Stories. Our presentation is at 7 p.m. on May 4th at the Lorenzo Cultural Center in Clinton Township. And there are already 250 people registered to attend, if you can believe that or not. That's because registration is free. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> so, oh, there you go. Okay. So if you'd like to attend, visit bit.do slash astonishingmichigan and select the register button. You can also find an event page on Facebook by searching the term Astonishing Michigan. And to be clear, that's not on our page, it's on theirs. So here's a quick language warning about tonight's show. We know we have some younger folks that listen, and we wanted to advise listeners in general that tonight's episode makes use, during some actual quotes, of a phrase that was pretty popular in the Old West and will be most familiar to our listeners by the acronym SOB. We, we debated bleeping it, but it's only in there a few times, and we feel like it contributes to feeling like you were there, as we'll be saying it only as it represents exact words spoken by the bad hombres in this story. Yes, the desperados. Especially if you use that uh, corny accent I'm using. So anyway, that's the only phrase you're going to find in the show of that nature, and only once or twice. But we didn't want to blindside you. Okay, let's get back to Montana. <laughs> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. We've done enough already to send us all to hell. Give me a good drop. Henry Plummer's paraphrased last words before being hanged by the neck until he was dead on January 10th, 1864. Join us tonight for part two of our series on Henry Plummer and the whirlwind surrounding the events of his life and death. Okay, so we're going to start out with a brief recap of what we talked about last week and the point at which we're picking up here with Henry Plummer's story. And another thing that I think we need to make clear is this story isn't just about Henry Plummer. It is, but it's also about these events that he wound up becoming the focal point of. But I don't even know, after having gone through it all, that he deserves to be the focal point. He may have been a little bit railroaded in terms of being... Right. Or scapegoated, I should say. Well, to your point, Scott, the reason that Henry Plummer is such a linchpin, sorry, yeah. there's a, an intended pun, yeah. uh, but the reason that he is a focal point for this vigilante movement and the spirit that was going around in the untamed and largely uncharted West at this time was that he was also the law. Yes. And people say like, okay, so he was the bad lieutenant, he's the bad sheriff it was kind of hard to tell the difference in those times. And there really wasn't a formal law yet that had been established. And I mean, congressionally established by a United States government, not just a regional or state government, because these weren't states yet, a lot of them. Yeah, they, they were territories. Right. People say, well, sure, you know, vigilantes, they were hanging people left and right in different territories out in the West. And that's true. That was part of the movement. That's why the backdrop is so vast and important for the history of America. Yeah, that was going on because people were fed up with this banditry from these desperados. So in a large part, they took the law into their own hands. And here's the first time, though, where it's like, did you go too far when you hang the sheriff? 
yeah. <laughs> without a lot of proof. That was only the beginning of going too far. Which exactly. we're going to get into some real serious details it, on it because it, there's a lot of yeah. things that got even worse. See, it got worse from a legal and just a personal standpoint if you're the person on the end of the rope there. At this point, Henry Plummer, as of when we finished the last episode, had already killed four people. Our it, sweet yes. little well. young man from Maine <laughs> had killed Four people. And, and there are historians, revisionist historians, and, and a lot of people think this way, that he was, you know, a victim of circumstance. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And sure, he had a temper. A lot of guys did, especially when they uh, got to sip on the whiskey. Yes. The fire water. And so there's a shade of it where you could say, like, it does look like a justified self-defense. And as you will see throughout a lot of the cases in the Old West, a lot of these drunken fights end up in somebody getting shot, and it was claimed as self-defense, and a lot of them got off. Let's talk about the four people that have already been done in before we start tonight. Mm, done in. Done in. Yeah. Uh, the first one we're going to talk about is John Vetter. You may remember him. He was Lucy's supposedly abusive husband. Yes, in a child custody case. And again, this yes, is what I love. This is what I love from the legal standpoint, as I mentioned in part one, if we didn't tell you what times these were, the 1860s, late 1859 to 63, you might think that these were news stories from this week. Yeah. A child custody case that goes wrong, somebody shoots a cop or attacks a cop. Well, yeah. And that fight with Vetter was brought about because Vetter and his wife Lucy were actually going to have a divorce, being coordinated by one of Henry Plummer's friends, who was a lawyer. And John had agreed to give up custody of their daughter to Lucy, but right. changed his mind. Had a few drinks, yeah. probably, changed <laughs> yeah. his mind, and set about to taking all those steps again. It's like a dateline that first he went over ostensibly to do this, and, <laughs> and then it then wound up being he that. over there. Yeah, and yeah. then he snuck up the back stairs and busted into the room and supposedly said to Henry Plummer, your time has come. At which point <laughs> yeah. Plummer said, shooting started. I don't even know who shot what right. or what happened, but Vetter's dead and turned himself in. Yes. And that was his first- Plummer did, yes. Yes, not, Plummer uh, turned himself Vetter. in. No, Vetter was dead. <laughs> he had been shot. Yes. And some might say, even argue in Vetter's case, that it's a crime of passion because there were rumors circulating that Lucy was getting very cozy with the handsome Henry. Yes. And that, yes, it was his role to protect her as kind of a median there. And in the same domicile, but he was starting to suspect that Plummer may have had more intentions other than just uh, lawful protection ones. Yeah, because so, they may have been up to the devil's business. Yeah, so... Cohen brothers. Right, right. It yeah. still doesn't justify it, but you can see the reason for his anger in a drunken spat, and crimes of passion get a little more leniency, I believe, in the legal system, at least they do here in California, than, yes. than cold-blooded planned murder. Right, so that happened on September 25th, 1857, near the end of 1857, he had three or four relatively uneventful years. Well, yeah. <laughs> in terms of killing people. True. Popping yeah. up on the criminal radar, but he was whooping it up in the evenings at saloons and brothels. Uh, yeah, at brothels. And that's where this bad reputation started to build because people know who's doing what in town. Yeah. So to recap again, the second killing that he was involved in, he was at a brothel called Irish Maggie's which was right up the street from the bakery he used to run when he was a fine, <laughs> upstanding young businessman. Well, there you go. You can walk to it. Yes, yeah. but he probably met Irish Maggie as long as everybody else when he was the bakery salesman because sure. he knew everybody, and that, right. that's sort of laying the groundwork for his, you know, he was good at networking. No, you get to know all the people running every kind of business because they all in some way offer food or drink, and especially yes. a uh, brothel's got a full bar going, and I'm sure with snacks. Needed yeah. bread. <laughs> exactly. So so the brothel, a man named Muldoon, busted 
busted into the room he was in at the time, and he hit him on the head with the butt of his pistol. Yeah, uh, he, he pretty good. Yeah, Muldoon was banging on the door because he wanted to see the gal that Plummer was with demanded, and of course, Plummer's in there with her. And yeah. so Plummer opens the door and pistol whips him. Yes. Smack on the head, which you can kill a guy like that, and he almost did. Yeah, hard enough to well, give him a concussion. Yeah. And as we said in part one, he lived long enough for Plummer to go and pretend to be friends and patch everything up in with him. In public, yeah. Yes. In public, like, look, we're good friends now. And, yeah, you know, everything's and, okay. It's kind of a weekend at Bernie's <laughs> situation. Right. We're cool, right? We're, we're cool with that? But yeah, Muldoon he, died. After a few weeks, yeah, yeah. He took a turn for the worst. Bad concussion that kind of simmered there. And if it turns out those were the causes, you can be brought up on murder. Right. So fearful of that, Plummer now slinks away. Yes, and gets away with it. However, that, by the way, was February 13th, 1861. Just a few months later, on October 27th of the same year, once again, a fight in a brothel. And that's the one where he killed William Riley, who slashed him in the head so good that he wore a hat the rest of his life to hide the scar. Yeah, exactly. That may have been more politically motivated because William Riley was a Southern secessionist and Plummer was actually a Democrat, a staunch... Northern Democrat. Northern Democrat. He was from Maine, remember, so he's a Northern Democrat, but staunch abolitionist. And so <laughs> maybe they were getting into a fight over a, a lady of the evening, but it could have been very well political because these are very heated times right now. Yeah, the Civil War is still going on. Yeah, 1861. So that's happening. And of course, they get into a big shouting match in the foyer of Irish Maggies. And this one may have been really self-defense because... Riley came after him with a large sheathed knife yeah. and slashed through his hat, causing the bad gash, and that's when Plummer shot him. Finally, for his fourth killing since 1857, on August 23rd of 1862, he and some buddies were out at a saloon that belonged to a man named Pat Ford. Now, Pat Ford was one of these guys that went where the mining towns were and provided entertainment exactly. for the people right. that work in the mines, the miners. And a lot of these mining towns had big tents, big canvas tents where they set up because they hadn't had the lumber or they're following the gold strikes. So he would put up a giant tent and invite miners in and charge them a dime a dance with several ladies that he'd bring along. Yes, offer liquor and a band. At a hurdy-gurdy house. And, and, exactly. Plummer and his friends, wherever they were, loved to have a good time, hit the whiskey and whoop it up, and they took it a little too far. Yeah. So they wound up running out of there after kind of shooting the place up, and Pat Ford followed them, and a shootout ensued. Bullets were flying, and in fact, Pat Ford shot and killed Plummer's horse, and they all returned fire and killed Pat Ford. And that one was the one where he was probably going to get in trouble. So he decided to get out of yeah, the town. Yeah, right. Remember, he had been pardoned from the earlier crime because people had written into the governor. For Funny. John Vetter, that's right. Exactly. We, we failed to mention that. To recap, he was sentenced to 10 years of hard labor yeah. in San Quentin prison. Convicted twice, but then pardoned. So, yeah. you so know. So you got to keep a clean nose <laughs> when you're out on a pardon. Here's the reason he kind of slunk out of town because they then wanted to go look for him. You know, they pardoned you doesn't mean you're scot-free for the rest of your life. You can be thrown back in jail. Yeah. Especially for some incident like this. And in this case, where he and his buddies were whooping it up and overturning tables and throwing glassware. That one, it all looked bad. It did look bad, and that was when he skedaddled. Exactly. So tonight we're going to pick up there, and we're going to take a look at the rest of his life and the violent events that surrounded the entire Alder Gulch gold camps in the late 1863 and throughout 1864. And you're going to find out why this is a very historically significant time period, and not only Montana's history, but the history of the United States. 
All right, so now it's 1862, and what's happening in Montana is a gold rush is taking hold. And there's been some discoveries up there. Some of the other places are starting to play out or they're overpopulated. So people are thinking, hey, what other parts of the country can we find gold? Especially in present-day Montana, there had been some gold strikes, but they weren't as rich, and they were kind of being tapped out. As you remember, as we were talking about plaster mining, that's the surface-eroded gold that ends up in the streams. So unless you find where the vein is coming out of the side of the mountain, once you collect it from the streams, it dries up. Placer, by the way, I found this out, is French for yeah. shoal. Yes. Yeah, there's always shoals. This is our connection <laughs> to Flight 19. Hen and chickens. And, and there's probably <laughs> yeah. some hens and chickens and roosters. Yes, yeah. hens, chickens, and roosters. So now that Plummer has killed four people, and also we failed to mention there was another four people that were sort of caught. Those were accidents. Yeah, there <laughs> were mean, accidental deaths. Related. So really eight people. You can say eight related deaths. Around him when they died. Yeah. <laughs> so we're building a case of character here for him, good and bad, because he wasn't necessarily all bad. There were a lot of people that were close to him that thought, like, this guy's pretty pleasant. He's well-spoken. Yeah. He stands upright. He's everything that they think a gentleman should be of the period. People of the time really believed in appearances. Yes, if they you thought look, they could figure out yeah, whether was, you were a good guy or exactly. bad guy by that was looking the, at you. Right, it was the heyday of phrenology. They could tell by the bumps on your head whether you're a criminal or a psychopath or a decent forthright citizen. Yeah. That was kind of what was so shocking. And as we build the case here, people, half of them didn't believe. It's like, sure, he gets drunk and has a little fun, but look at him. He looks like a nice guy. Yeah. And they knew him, and he actually was. He was soft-spoken, they said, and articulate. In a lot of cases, what made him a good lawman was that he was able to talk people down off the ledge because he was calm and cool and collected. To a to point. A point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This still works to this day with people. You hear about people getting conned by somebody because they were very charming. Yes. Now, and I'm not saying that Plummer was a con man, and I'm not afraid to say that. No, and, and, and what, you what I'm that's, trying right. to say is we're going to leave this open because yeah. this is going to be a big question that you need to think about as we're going through this story is, who was this guy? Right. Was he bad? Was he good? Was he in right. the wrong place at the wrong time? Was he a criminal mastermind? Or was he just associated enough with bad people that the finger got pointed at him? I still have questions about it. Sure. And I want our listeners to experience that same kind of question. Exactly. And if you look at him as like he was conning people, he was a con man. Well, he wasn't really gaining anything directly from them. He never borrowed stuff and never repaid it. He didn't swindle people out of anything. There was no larceny. However, his one thing that he was suspected of was maybe somehow as an investment, as a mastermind, organizing other criminals to right. a degree. And as you're seeing here, he always had a knack for associating with some very bad gentlemen. Like we said, he's a good networker. He's, he's, he's a good networker. <laughs> good but, and bad. He's got people on both sides of the track. But for whatever reason, it's very strange and it does not make you guilty but if a lot of your friends are roughs, as they used to call them back in the day, tough guys, thugs, you start to wonder, why are all your friends like either escaped from prison or they killed somebody or they robbed? So again, that paints a picture which did not help him in the long run. Okay, so now that he's been implicated in the death of Pat Ford, he's trying to flee. And Alan seems to think that he wanted to leave the West, that he was done, that he had maybe figured out that he wasn't doing so hot now that he's killed four people. <laughs> Eight people have died around him, four right. by his own hand. And it seemed like maybe he wanted to head east. So yeah. he heads to Fort Benton. So if you look at Plummer's life overall, it's a pattern of fresh starts, which generally work for him. Yes. And you could tell that he likes to whoop it up, but he realizes that 
if he plays it on the straight and narrow, that he's influential enough and smart enough that people seem to gravitate towards him. So if he puts his nose to the grindstone, he can achieve things, or at least be a man that commands respect. Yes. Which we see throughout his life. He's trying to be a man of authority. Right. And respected. And at this point, he's feeling a bad pass. So he yes. heads to Fort Benton, which is this tiny little place on the Missouri River. And it's considered the gateway between the east and this part of the northwestern part of the country. He's hoping to cross there and maybe go somewhere and start a new life. The theory is that he may have been wanting to return to Maine, to his roots. Yes. A seafaring country, get out of the Old West. But there was a problem when he got to Fort Benton. It was closing down for the winter. At that part of the river... Large paddle wheelers operated, these steam-driven paddle wheelers, and smaller Mackinac boats, which were sail-driven. And you could get those in, but they're very small. Yeah. You can only put so many people and supplies onto one of those, whereas the larger paddle wheels, some were pretty big, and people had horses and supplies they were traveling with towards the end of the summer as people were packing up, as they said, to go back to the States. You hear that phrase quite a bit, which is funny because we think, well, it's all the States. Like, not at that time. Right. The eastern half of the United States were the States. You were in the frontier. So to get back, as they say, to the States, they would pack up for the winter because winters in the West were pretty harsh, especially without good Especially up north there. Yeah, Yeah, right. North into the West. The other thing is that as the summer drew on, the water levels in the river changed. So a lot of those bigger boats could not make the draft. So a lot of them weren't coming upstream. And also there were some Native American attacks and they were afraid of those. Right. Right. So effectively he's stuck. And yes. he doesn't have the option to leave town. And at this point he meets up with a man known as Jack Cleveland. This is in October of 1862. Now Jack Cleveland was actually John Farnsworth which is a man who had broken out of jail in Nevada City in 1856 when Plummer was marshal and who was also involved in the incident that left the sheriff of Nevada City dead, which Plummer was not accused of, but right. he was a bystander and had been part of the problem. Sheriff not Wright. Part, yes. Yeah, he, that was the incident where he got killed. And I believe Plummer was instrumental in rounding up this John Farnsworth. That's right. Which has now got to be awkward. Right, so he brought <laughs> him now, to jail yeah. in that incident. Right. It's strange. Now they're in cahoots together, and it's hard to know why. Nobody really knows what their relationship would have been well, like. Well, it's much safer and beneficial for people to be traveling with somebody. And the larger the party, the better. And by yourself, yeah, you can do it, but you're vulnerable. So they don't know why Plummer would agree to be traveling with this ex-convict. Plummer himself at this point is also an ex-convict. Yeah. But one that he initially took back to jail, rounded up as an escapee. When he was a marshal. When he was a marshal. So right. here's somebody who may have a grudge. Didn't seem like it at this point, but you never know. He's kind of a, Cleveland's a rough character. And yeah. of course he changed his name. He's looking for a fresh start, which you could do back then. You could change your name, go to a new town and... Even people might know that you had a former name and you're trying to outrun somebody like the law or creditors or something. They kind of let you pass if you prove to be decent wherever you ended up. Yeah. So yeah, you may be wondering why these two are pairing up. Well, other than the safety of travel and pairs and the ease of it, they're thinking that Cleveland may have wanted to follow Plummer because he had heard of a stash of gold dust that Plummer had. Plummer had had some success in the gold fields. That may be a rumor that Cleveland heard and said like, well, you know what, I'm just going to kind of find out and track this guy, shadow him, dog him, and then see where maybe his stash is. That's one theory. 
But why Plummer would want to travel with Cleveland, nobody knows other than he may not have had a choice in the matter. Yeah. So it's like, well, I'm traveling with you. It's like, other than really killing the guy in cold blood. Yeah. It's, eh, all right. Maybe that comes later, but <laughs> for right. right now, I'll let this guy tag along. Right. And so the two of them are looking for work, and that's when they meet a man named James Vale. And Vale was what is known as an Indian agent. He was a liaison between the U.S. government right. and the Native Americans in the area. Yeah. And he had a farm at a place called Sun River where he had his whole family, and he was worried about coming under attack from a local tribe, the Blackfeet tribe. I right. Mean. He was hired to manage it and be the liaison. Now, my great uncle was actually the agricultural manager agent for the Flathead region there up oh, in Montana. Wow. Yeah. So this would be probably the 20s and 30s. And his job was to deliver supplies and make sure that they could build houses if they wanted, uh, distribute money that they needed. And a lot of those guys back in the day weren't that honest, and I think they kept a lot of the money. So they weren't really distributing goods and supplies and agricultural skills to the First Nations peoples up there as they were supposed to. But some were, I mean, my uncle was cool. So he, he was- As far as you know. He, well, yeah, I did know him oh, okay, uh, okay. personally. Yes, yes. I, will, I will vouch for his character. He okay. was a, he's a really decent guy and it was a rough job up there. But the problem is to the Blackfeet, they didn't really see this as helping them. They saw this as the white man encroaching on their lands and trying to westernize them yeah, where they didn't them really want live. Yeah, they were doing just fine for hundreds of, you know, maybe thousands of years there. So it was a tough job for Vale. They were not very receptive, and the place was not very built up. It was very bare, didn't get a lot of good uh, Yelp reviews. There were some animals there, but it was a very ragtag. Yeah. There was just one man there who was the maintenance guy, the caretaker, the handyman. He was a Native American named Iron, much beloved. But that's really all the help they got there. So they showed up at this place. It was very bleak existence there and not a lot of people, especially that time of the year when it, most people had left. So again, not a great welcome for the Vales. Yeah, and Vale's a young man. He's only, I think, 24, 24 from Yeah, Can they're you all from- imagine all, yeah. having that kind of responsibility at the age of 24? Uh, not today, but as we said, you know, Henry Pummler was a marshal not very old. So yeah. yeah, in their 20s, you were still considered a young man, but I think that they expected a lot more out of you. Yes, yeah. considered a young man, but like he accepted the job and not a lot of people on the steamer going up with him thought he was going to succeed. Yeah. So Vale hires Henry Plummer and Jack Cleveland to come back to his homestead and help him out, help take care of the family, help protect them from attack and that sort of thing. So they head out there to the Sun River farm. During this excursion or this brief employment, Plummer meets a woman named Electa Bryan. Electa is Vale's wife's sister. Younger I, sister, yes. Younger sister. And I guess she had come west with Vale and his family after having a falling out with some other family back east. Right. Her father had died and the stepmother. Stepmother, that's right. Yeah, she, she had a get, wicked stepmother. Yeah. <laughs> well, they had a falling out. <laughs> Electa's 20 years old, but not very worldly. Yes. Attractive, but just sheltered at that point. She'd been helping out on that family farm. So it's a good chance to get away, and it shows a lot of courage on her part, going yes. into the wild unknowns of the West. Right, and so Plummer and Cleveland show up at the house, and Plummer becomes kind of taken with Electa, and vice versa, but he's not the only one flirting. Cleveland, apparently, <laughs> being the rough sort, is also yes. making unappreciated advances at and, Electa as well. Yeah, as it was called, clumsy advances. Clumsy advances. Yes, because there weren't many women in general in the West. Yes. Allen states at this time, probably pre-Civil War, in the whole territory of Montana, there may have been just a couple hundred white men at, at all. Right. And many fewer white 
women of European descent. Right. And before that, a lot of uh, white men coming out would take Native American brides. That's correct. But in this case, yeah. So Cleveland is obviously, there. again, she's pretty attractive. He ain't seen a woman in a long time. And of course, this creates a lot of animosity when he sees that Plummer is getting a lot further than he is as far as the affections of Electa. Yeah, you have that going on. And then you also have the pre-existing relationship between Cleveland and Plummer, it gets complicated. Again, we hear stories here of how refined and how much decorum that Plummer had and how polite he was. He was probably just better in general at wooing Electa. But whatever happens, the time that Plummer's spending there and after having met Electa, he seems to have a change of heart about fleeing back east. Right. He decides that he wants to resurrect his reputation or start over, as you said a few minutes ago, yeah. reinvent himself, maybe look at settling down with Electa. My opinion, yes. This was his opportunity to find a decent woman, make an honest woman out of her, and settle down and be a family man and right. gain some respect in a new place. So he had hope for a better future than what his past had been so far. To that end, he came to the conclusion that he and Cleveland needed to leave the Vale Ranch before the winter. Right. They had determined that the threat from the Blackfeet tribe of a, an attack had yeah. gone away, had subsided because right. they had left. And he thought that throughout the harsh winter that was coming, it would actually be harder for them to feed everybody. Exactly. But right. I also think, and Alan didn't say this, this is me surmising this, mm -hmm. that he, maybe he wanted to remove his, not only his competition, but a dangerous man from the area around this girl that he was sweet on. Yeah, I, that's a definite possibility. And so Bannock is about 200 miles south of Sun River, and any travel in this day and age is very treacherous. So who knows what could happen out on the trail? That's right. <laughs> you know. So he convinces Electa and the Vale family that he's going to go away, but he'll be back in the spring for her. They're sort of engaged at this point. Yeah, so they've come together. They're, it seems like they're going to get married. Now, we're not sure exactly how their trip to Bannock went, Cleveland and Plummer, but we do have some information from a pair of brothers that lived in Bannock that were what you call diarists, who wrote down everything that happened. They're very legendary characters of the West, like your Kit Carsons and your Daniel Boones. It, for the region, Granville and James Stewart were legendary. And the other great thing is, yeah, not a lot of records were kept if you were out in the frontier. So what's great about Alan's book is that he goes through and gets a lot of information for people's diaries. Yes. Contemporaries of the time. And as he figures it, you know, if you're writing a letter to someone who's very close to you, you're probably going to be pretty honest for the most part. And he's cross-referencing these events with other people. So, yes, uh, James and Granville Stewart, they took control. They were very adventurous, upstanding citizens, and they took command and made sure things like administration of government and the law was being upheld in the various areas. Right. And they took notice of when Plummer came and went. And they saw him as a very refined individual who they felt they could trust. And as we said earlier, you judge people by their looks back at this time, and not like that isn't still happening today, whether <laughs> right. it should be or not. And they determined that he seemed like a trustworthy guy. And when they got to Bannock in 1862, November of 1862, they found that Henry Plummer was already there. But not only was he already there, he and Cleveland, they were both in town, but they had had a falling out and they were no longer really speaking other than rudely to each other. Yeah. And in fact, Cleveland was constantly drunk in the saloons and challenging Plummer to a fight. And at one point he even said, he's my meat, right? Or something yeah. to that effect. <laughs> yeah. And what he meant was 
he could take him at any time. Yeah. And would often challenge him, or as they said in the phraseology of the day, swearing an oath at somebody. Right. Which is not <laughs> like taking a nice oath. It's, doggone it, you're going to be six feet under by the sun setting today. So that's what they mean when they said swearing a lot of oaths at people. Anytime that those two kind of met up, it turned into that where it was just curses and uh, insults. And Plummer seemed to let it go. You know, he took the higher he road. He played it very cool. He was a very cool customer. Now, having moved to Bannock, it's difficult to tell whether or not anyone recognized Plummer from his past, especially from being a wanted man in the death of Pat Ford. Or maybe somebody might have remembered him as a marshal in Nevada City. There's a lot of things that he could have been associated with. Right. There were a lot of people migrating into Bannock because it was a mining community. And what you get is you get miners coming and going. People come and find the works too hard and they, they leave. Or right. new people are coming trying to find claims. The people who are less transient are the merchants and yeah. the business owners and those folks. Those people are there for a longer haul, but the rest of the community is coming and going. And it seems a little bit like there might have been an unwritten rule about recognizing people. Because, for example, there was a man who owned a saloon in Bannock called the Elkhorn Saloon. This was the hottest spot in town, apparently. <laughs> Named for the Elkhorns above the front door. Yes. And his name was Cyrus Skinner. We mentioned yeah. him in part one, I believe. And Skinner had actually been in San Quentin at the same time as Plummer and working in the infirmary, the yeah. same infirmary that Plummer... Right played his game to get released early. Yes, exactly, where Plummer was a trustee. And, of course, you have to assume that they definitely knew each other from yeah. his past life. Yes, and we're reminding you that he had gone to San Quentin for the killing of John Vetter, and he had that 10-year sentence That's right. and was then pardoned. Right. Skinner was a heavily tattooed ruffian character that, again, he's the saloon owner. But think of it today, in today's terms, as kind of the shady possibly mob-connected club owner right? that everybody loves. Hey, it's little Joey or whatever it is. Yeah, you know? a little bit <laughs> like, of a Ian like, McShane and Deadwood e kind Exactly, of yeah. yeah, where he's like, just don't cross this guy somehow because you might end up in the uh, landfill. But yeah. other than that, he pours the whiskey heavy, and uh, he's a lot of fun. There's a question as to how Skinner and Plummer react to each other when they met. There's not a whole lot of information about that because it's not something, for instance, that the Stewart brothers would have even known to look for. So they may have exchanged a quiet word in a corner, in a saloon, and no one would really know. My personal theory is it's kind of like when you're a spy and you meet another spy from a long time ago somewhere, which we've mentioned in an earlier episode. You don't go up and go, hey, how's the spy business been? And I think it's probably the same way. It's like, <laughs> yeah, so remember the good times at San Quentin? Yeah, no, Mr. No. Saloon owner? Oh, by the way, I'm trying to make a fresh start. You probably just exchange a knowing glance. Yeah, because they all are. That's the thing. Everybody's yes. trying to make a fresh start. You know, when you talk about these larger gold strikes, there was a few big ones, and everybody who was into that at the time, who wanted to try the hard work of placer mining and hard rock mining, all went to the same places because you'd hear news about these gold strikes, and then everybody rushed over there, hence the term gold rush. So the Pikes Peak gold rush guys all knew each other from Colorado. Right. And then they kept going around to these different strikes. So the idea here is that it's most likely that a lot of people already knew Plummer from his slightly rough days well, and we, some from his prison days. Right. And we do know also that Jack Cleveland actually got spotted by somebody from his hometown. That's right. And Cleveland apparently threatened to kill the guy after he outed him as John Farnsworth. <laughs> yeah. Which is the same guy that Plummer had arrested yeah. back in Nevada City. Now, here's just a point. It's something I noticed on the wiki page. He's sometimes listed as John Ferguson, and yes. that's from Linda Buxbaum's book, Life and Times of Henry Plummer. But she may have changed that because I believe her account is a novelization. A lot of facts right. in it, a lot of correct facts. 
But I saw that difference, and I thought you might be confused if you go check that and oh, look that up. So there yeah. you go. Good, Good point. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess Cleveland now he's resurfaced at this point. He's the town bully. No one likes him. He was reviled in town, and he actually he's one of those guys that he would get drunk and pick fights, and he also made everybody call him chief. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. He not only for the uh, self accolades there, but as a way to humiliate smaller men. Yeah. Yeah. We're acknowledging here that uh, I could beat you up. Yeah. So Cleveland had been talking a lot of smack in town, getting drunk, being a jerk. Nobody liked him. And it sets the stage for his future. And what many people will tell you was the killing that not only sealed Henry Plummer's ultimate fate, but unleashed a legendary chain of events. Once again, The Great Courses Plus is featuring a lecture series that's right up this show's alley. Great Mythologies of the World, and it's a meaty one. This series alone has 60 lectures, and this time it's topped by four really engaging, award-winning professors. Yeah, this one's a real tour de force, and it covers the great myths from every continent on Earth, except maybe Antarctica. Mm. I didn't see anything on that in there. (laughs) What, the myth of UFO bases in Antarctica? Uh, Yeah, I would guess that's not really in their wheelhouse, so to speak. But if you want to learn about the myths of a lot of the major cultures of the world from past and present, this course has got it. From the Babylonians, Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans, to Norse and Celtic. To Africa, Asia, the Middle East, the Americas. And I did see a lecture on the myths of the Inuit peoples, so they managed to get the North Pole in there, too. (laughs) That's right. We were actually kind of blown away by the coverage on this one. Yeah. And with the Great Courses Plus, not only can you learn about every place in the world, but you can also watch these courses anywhere, because these lectures are streamable from any device you have. Tablet, laptop, smartphone, or TV. Okay, so which one did you check out first? I went straight to the lecture on Native American tricksters. The trickster is found in legends around the world, like in Norse mythology, he's Loki, of course, Hermes in Greek myths, Anansi in West Africa, Susanowo in Japan, and Maui in Hawaii. But did you know, in most other parts of the world, with the partial exception of Africa, he's more or less human, while in North America, he's either an animal or can take an animal form at will. And they're always trying to get something for nothing, shifting shapes or gender, stealing somebody else's food, getting caught in the act, and they can't be killed. Mm. That all sounds a lot like the Sherman's giant wolf encounter at Skinwalker Ranch, doesn't it? We can't wait to start digging into all these myths. And if you want to check them out for yourself, there are over 8,000 streamable lectures on everything from understanding your investments to understanding dark matter. And there's even a course called An Everyday Guide for Wine. Just use our special URL to check it all out for free for a whole month at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's L-E-G-E-N-D-S. We know you're really going to love it. Once again, to get your free month of unlimited viewing, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hey everyone, it's just me, the Florida Skunk Kid, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Jack Cleveland showed his true colors in January of 1863 when a rancher named George Edwards went to check on his livestock during a bad snowstorm and never returned. When people set out looking for him a few days later, his clothes were found stuffed in a badger hole along Grasshopper Creek. His bloodied clothes. His bloodied clothes. Lo and behold, Mr. Cleveland seems to have come into some money at pretty much the exact same time. Gold dust. This was the first seemingly premeditated murder in Bannock. And this presents a problem because there is no sheriff. Bannock isn't even a county. Technically, there's no law. In fact, 
The only law was a local butcher named Hank Crawford, who had been drafted, I guess probably because he was a big guy and agreed to it, to keep order in town whenever a fight or something broke out. Yeah, he's a bouncer type. So yeah, they a said, bouncer. like, you know what? He'll go break up the fight. By the way, he was also known for drinking and carousing. Well, they, <laughs> so much the better. Yeah. yeah. Now, Mr. Crawford had no legal power of any kind. And not only that, he was something of a partier himself. So he made no effort to confront. Cleveland regarding the death of that rancher. Not that he yeah. should have, because what's he going to do? He can't even arrest him. Keep in mind, there's also no jail. Right. There's no jailhouse structure at this point. There's nowhere to even put him. So here we get into another one of the mitigating factors out there that can't be forgotten, politics. And we've mentioned it a little bit already, so I'm not going to go super deep into it, but it's the idea of the North versus the South. The Civil War is still going on. People are on both sides of it. And by all accounts, Plummer was a Northern Democrat, as we said a few minutes ago. And that's important to consider when you think about any kind of barroom altercation, but it's bigger than that. It's not just about, I'm for the North and I'm from the South. It's also about how is the government going to deal with these new expanding territories like right. Montana? People are not agreeing about, people don't want it to be part of the, air quotes, United States. They want it to be its yeah. own territory. This is the frontier. We can do whatever we want. So there was a lot of disagreement about the establishment of government and who should be in charge and what the rule of law was. So keeping that in mind, early on the morning of January 14th, 1863, Henry Plummer is in the saloon at the Goodrich Hotel in Bannock, hanging out by the stove to try and warm up and talking to some friends when Jack Cleveland wanders through the door, drunk already. In, in the morning. In the yeah. morning. <laughs> Cleveland comes in and starts after a guy named Perkins. I think it was Jeff Perkins. Yes. Yeah, about owing him money. And Plummer tells him to sit down and be quiet. The money was paid already and the matter was closed. Again, I want to point out here, in a quiet, soothing tone. Yes. And then he, he, was, he was very good at that as far as talking people down, which is a great skill for a law enforcement person to be able to first talk people down without drawing pistols. Yes. But then there's another quote about Plummer that I want to read here real quick. This was said by a man named Edwin Purple, and I think it's, it's pretty pertinent here. It's an awesome last name as well. Yes. Plummer spoke in a low, quiet tone of voice, a habit which never deserted him. But when he got angry, his gray eyes grew black and glistened like a rattlesnake's. Yeah, there you go. People had an opinion about Plummer's temper, and we're about to find out about it. Because Cleveland, after being quiet for a minute, I guess Jeff Perkins fled and went to get a gun because he was pretty sure that later in the day he was probably going to get shot by Cleveland mm. about the missing money, which supposedly had already been paid. Cleveland, after sitting quietly for just a minute and probably stewing about having been dressed down by Plummer, stands up and starts complaining again about Perkins owing him money. At which point, Henry Plummer says, You son of a bitch. I'm tired of this. He drew his pistol he fired one shot into the ceiling, and then the second shot right into Cleveland's stomach. And Cleveland falls. And at this point, Cleveland famously said, You wouldn't shoot me when I'm down. No, Plummer said. Get up. So Jack Cleveland starts to get up. Plummer shoots him two more times, once in the chest and once in the head. At this point, people are trying to get Plummer to get out of Bannock. They actually hustled him out of the saloon, but he just went home. And so then they call the butcher, Crawford, to come and help Jack Cleveland. Yeah, he didn't die immediately, but he's dying quickly. He's bleeding out. Yeah, he's not in good shape. So Crawford comes in there and he's like, oh, this guy's bleeding everywhere. He's like, I'm not using my blankets for this. He supposedly goes to Plummer's house and is like, I need some blankets 
for the guy that you shot that's bleeding everywhere. <laughs> it just seems fair, sure. Right, at which point Plummer's like, is he still alive? Is he talking about me? And freaking out about it, because I guess he's afraid Cleveland's going to say something about his past. That is one theory of why he's so, uh, he's hiding, but he's completely nervous and dazed. Yeah. And Plummer is. Maybe he's worried about this future he was supposed to have with Electa, his new start. He's, you know, going back to get her in the spring and marry her and maybe settle down in Bannock. And now he's already getting into it with Jack Cleveland. And maybe this was the reason he brought Jack away from the Vale farm. And it may also be the reason that if you want to think of him as being ultimately calculating, that he brought Cleveland to Bannock. Maybe he figured that sooner right. or later he would get into a position where he could shoot him. And this was one of those positions. Cleveland didn't exactly lunge at him. He hurled some insults and he was threatening but you couldn't say really in a physically violent manner. So the odd thing to me is that Plummer, he snapped. Obviously, that's what people said. He was really calm. Suddenly, he just kind of snapped, which seems part of his character as well, deep down. Yeah. And he fires a shot into the ceiling. Yeah, what was that Well, shot? you would think it's a warning shot, like, look, sucker, the next one's going right into you, so get out of here. I don't want to hear from you again for a long time, kind of a gesture. But then he shoots him in the gut. And in the Old West, a gut shot's a bad thing because you could last for days and not be able to drink any water. It's a long, slow, painful death. Yeah. So it's much more merciful to shoot you in the head, which he does. It's not a a shot to the brain because Cleveland lasts for another three hours. Right. Just writhing in pain. And I'm sure Plummer the whole time is just wondering, what is he saying about me? Yeah. So he apparently was concerned that he was going to get ratted out by Cleveland for some of his past deeds, but apparently Cleveland did never say anything about him. And of course, he was probably still drunk. And at this point... (laughs) Well, possibly, yeah. Yeah, he's not... If he was in his right mind, he might have said other things. So let that be a lesson to you, kids. If you're going to get shot, try to be sober. You can have some (laughs) decent last words. As it was, Cleveland's last words were, poor Jack has got no friends. He has got it, and I guess he can stand it. The it meaning death. Yeah, he's got the death the coming. Yeah. So he died. And the interesting thing about that is now you have Plummer has shot this man down in cold blood, but nobody decides to go after him for it. No one liked Cleveland. No. And it was, I guess, kind of considered self-defense. And there wasn't really any law in town aside from the butcher who, as we said, can't arrest anybody or put anyone in jail because there isn't one. Yeah, And right. maybe he should have left town, but he right. doesn't. He doesn't. As we see in the story here, not everybody thinks that way or is totally united 100% in one sentiment or another because there's some people who are prominent in this story and in the town. James Fergus, who was hired to make Cleveland's coffin and is one of a Scottish immigrant. Yes, immigrant. you know, hardworking, loves his family, out there to make some money to bring them all over from the East. And he says in his diary that the victim, quote, was shot in cold blood in midday and the murderer is still at large, untried, unpunished, and no one molests him. So he's saying like, this guy got away with it. No one's doing anything. Yeah. And maybe it's different in Scotland, but he's saying, you know, usually people go to jail for that kind of thing, or at least question about it. But the town's feeling is that eh, Cleveland's kind of a bad guy anyway. So it's better if we just kind of look the other way here. Yeah. And that's another major running theme motif that goes through this is that it's the feeling of the mob and town mentality of what's good at that moment for them. Yes. And so that brings us to another character that's in town that is also an old associate of Plummer's. Remember when he got into the altercation with Pat Ford, which we talked about in part one, and again at the recap at the top of this episode, that was when Pat Ford got killed and he fled justice and tried to leave that part of the country at Fort Benton. 
Well, one of the people that was with him that night was a man named Charles Reeves. And Charles is also in Bannock. And they had apparently had been avoiding each other because obviously they had kind of a bad history together. And Reeves was also a San Quentin escapee. The other thing about Reeves, not such a great guy. He has a Native American wife. And not too long after they got married, he winds up abusing her, physical abuse, just beating her horribly. Right. And she runs away back to her camp, which is not too far away. Yeah, some of the Bannock tribe had made camp on uh, one of the hillsides there close to town and were minding their own business and nobody bothered them really. As long as the Native Americans didn't uh, come into town or bother them or steal anything, they didn't really think of them one way or the other. Just right. get out of our way. So there was an easy truce between the two as not to bother each other. Right. But the problem is that Reeves had been beating his wife up. She goes back up to the camp to try and see her, and one of the elders won't let him see her and turns him away. Yeah. So he goes back down to town. The next night, he starts having some drinks, thinking about his situation, and decides that he's going to go up there and get her no matter what. So he goes up there with a friend of his. Charlie Moore. Charlie and Moore. And he's angry and drunk, and I'm sure just Charlie Moore is just drunk, but and violent. He, yeah. And he starts shooting randomly into the teepees at the campsite and wounds one person, I believe, but doesn't kill anybody at that time. And then winds up going back down into town again, drinking further and coming back with more people, at which point he has another rampage and ends up killing three Bannock tribe members. Yeah, and a French fur trader who had come to investigate because he heard gunshots. So there's three guys now from town, the third one being William Mitchell. But basically, yeah, now they've committed murder. Yeah, so it's a bad situation. So they realize that they need to flee town. And they start heading out of town. And I guess at this point, now that Cleveland has actually died, Plummer's gotten a little nervous about that situation. And he meets up with these other three, and they're all headed out of town together. Exactly. On their way to flee into the hills, it's very kind of uh, slow rolling hills in this town, uh, and the town's kind of in the valley there. So they're running off into the hills, and they stop by and pick up Plummer. And Plummer also thinks, like, I'm known to associate with these guys, if the town starts thinking like, you know what, that plumber jerk also killed a guy, we're kind of seeing a pattern here. Plumber thinks he should flee as well. Yeah. He takes off with them. And the very next day, posse finds them all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, don't, well, they don't make it that far. Right. But they're in a standoff because they're evenly matched. And they had this concern where if they turned back, if the posse turned back to go get reinforcements, they were going to get away. Right. But by the same token, they wanted to come up to a resolution. So Plummer starts negotiating for the fugitives with the posse, having formerly been a lawman himself. Yeah. He says, look, we'll come with you, but you have to guarantee us a fair trial. We need a fair trial. And they agree to it because their other choice is to abandon them for reinforcements and, and run the risk of not having them, of not being able to capture them again. Exactly. Reeves is refusing to surrender, so he wants to shoot it out. So yeah. there, there's four posse members for these runaways here. And again, that could have been a long, drawn-out stalemate with uh, a lot of them getting hurt on both sides and killed. So right. the best thing, as Plummer sees it, again, using his negotiating skills, talking the situation down, like, I'll tell you what, we'll give up our guns. But we want a trial, and we want a trial by our peers, not by crowd jury, yes. which is a specific thing where people just shout out their likes and dislikes. Yes, which will come up again. Right. And so they go back, and Plummer, it turns out he kind of knew what he was doing because everyone hated Jack Cleveland. He was exonerated within hours. The other three had the first murder trial in southwest Montana. Right. Now, this is an important note here. 
that the mindset of the time, yes, nowadays we see these drunken idiots killed three Native Americans plus a, you know, a French fur trapper. That's awful. The mindset of the time, very unfortunately, was that they didn't really care so much about the Native American lives. They were afraid if the other tribes people came out and found out that some white folks had shot some Bannock Indians and there was other tribes that were around the area, that would start a lot of problems for the whole town. Reprisals. To varying degrees, it had all throughout their, you know, movement out west. So they knew that could be very bad for everybody. That's what they were really upset about. So they wanted to get rid of these guys. So they had this trial, and during the trial, it turns out that the guys wound up, everyone wanted to have leniency on them. They were like, well, the Indians kind of wronged them, which is obviously horrible. But so no, they but went up there. And right. So a lot of the pioneers coming out had their own bad experiences with the Native Americans because they're trouncing on somebody's land, crossing over to get to the West or wherever they're headed. So they could sympathize with these guys in some remote way that, well, yeah, they got attacked in California. So, you know, it's revenge. Oh, that's right. Oh, and we didn't mention that. That's something that came up at the trial. They were attacked by Native Americans in earlier in California. Yeah, right. And they had said that this was sort of a revenge action, and that was part of the reason that they went up there and yeah. shot the Bannock. Right. Tribal. Basically just drunk and angry and not counting those lives as much as other white folks. But this attracted a crowd of 500 people to come out into the street to gather. And, and of course, they wanted a mass jury. Everybody wanted a mass jury. And that's a, just a chaotic scene where everybody's shouting out, like we said, evidence and guilty and hang them and let them go. And it's just a chaotic scene. But back then with no formal court, a lot of times that's what happened because that was the demands of the town. And here's an important historical point. This was the first proceeding of its kind for Southwest Montana, for the whole region there. Yeah, uh, it was the first murder trial, technically. Yeah, right, yeah, even though it's not really a trial. They're trying to make it formal because of their promise. So they kept their promise to these three guys that they would have a trial by a jury of their peers. Yes. And another important point, by the way, at this point, Crawford has become, the butcher has become the sheriff. Crawford yeah, is now it, the de, sheriff. De facto. Well, that happened a lot in the West where you didn't go for a few years at the academy and trained. It's like, well, that guy's kind of burly and he can hold a gun pretty well. He's a quick draw. So, and he seems decent. Let's make him the sheriff. Yeah. Lawyers, yes. They had lawyers in town and they would act sometimes as judges, whatever they needed at the time. And Nathaniel Langford, who is a major character historically as well, because he, he wrote a book after this all happened in his his memoirs, and he's a town leader and figures prominently in this story from his memoirs, but probably, as, as Alan said, very melodramatic in a lot of his descriptions. But his book, Vigilante Days and Ways, is often looked to for a lot of the history. He also was a Mason. He's also a Mason. Prominent. And, right, and of course, very much cited, and he becomes an important part of the Vigilance Committee. But the long and short of it is the two guys do not get sentenced to hang for their crimes. In fact, they get banished and all their property is to be seized and they're going to be sent out to a remote place called Deer Lodge and asked to leave town. But the problem is it's the dead of winter and they start to have problems. They're living in some kind of hut out in town, having a lot of outside of town, having a lot of issues. And they wind up just coming back to town. And then they get their guns back and then it's like nothing happened. And during all of this now, a feud is developing between Sheriff Crawford and our hero, Henry Plummer. And I say the term hero because he's our main character. But the point is that things are coming to a head between them now. Crawford is convinced that Plummer wants to kill him because of anything that he might have heard from Jack Cleveland on his deathbed 
when he was trying to help him in the saloon there as he was bleeding to death. Exactly. So Hank Crawford is paranoid that Plummer thinks that Cleveland told him something incriminating and now he's out gunning for him. So this paranoia grows and grows and it comes to a head. So we had this little section from Frederick Allen's book that we wanted to read you directly regarding a skirmish that took place between Crawford and Plummer. One morning in broad daylight in the middle of Main Street, Plummer stood resting with one foot perched on a wagon wheel, cradling a rifle in his arm, looking out for his adversary. Crawford stepped from the door of a restaurant behind Plummer, balanced his rifle on a log projecting from the corner of the building and fired. The ball struck Plummer in the right elbow, traveled along his forearm, shattering the bones and lodged in his wrist. Spinning around, Plummer cursed Crawford and shouted defiantly, Fire away! Crawford fired the second barrel and missed, and Plummer was helped to his cabin. Right, so back then, just as it is now, shooting somebody in the back is considered an act of cowardice. Sure. So Crawford had been afraid. He felt like Plummer was faster than he was, and that's why he did that. He was like, <laughs> I got to do this, because yeah. if I don't, I'm going to get killed. Right. By Plummer. And he's afraid of him, but he screwed it up. It didn't work. Yeah, but here's the thing. If had he shot him in the back, he might have been strung up himself for murder. There weren't many options back then. It's not like you can do five years in jail here in town. Again, there's no jail. So yeah. it's either we string you up or we banish you from town. And as we said before, in the winter, that didn't go so well with those other guys because there's nowhere for them to go. That's the basic principle is that they're going to freeze to death out in the snow and these really cold temperatures in a, in a part of Montana and the country that gets blisteringly cold during the winter. So there's not many options, but to Cleveland's mind, it's him or me, and I better uh, get him first. Yeah, and Plummer standing his ground and yelling, fire away at Crawford, <laughs> without even drawing a weapon or anything, yeah. became the stuff of legend. At that point, he was starting to cement his identity as a tough man. Yeah, it's kind of a brash, proud, and brave moment you could see it as. In another sense, that Plummer's left hand was injured previously, fingers permanently curled, and now his right hand is kind of useless because it's got a, a, a lead ball stuck into the joint there. So he's kind of lame at this point, but it is a, a defiant act. And you see that in kind of Old West stories where the guy is at his rope's end and either he's blubbering or he's very defiant and like, do it. So that's where Plummer is now, and that kind of cemented his image in the town as like, well, you know what? This guy's kind of brave. Like, it's it's admirable. Yeah, he's a rough guy, but, you know, that's kind of cool, which is essentially the thinking of a lot of the folks in town. Not everybody, but the tide is turning towards giving him the benefit of the doubt now. And another interesting thing is that he was so severely injured, they had a doctor named Jerome Glick. I always think of... Uh, Jiminy Glick. Jiminy Glick. <laughs> no, that would be funny. <laughs> as an L character. Yeah. And Jerome Glick was charged with saving Plummer's arm. He felt like it needed to be amputated, and he was apparently telling Plummer that it needed to be amputated, and Plummer said he'd rather be dead. At which point, I guess some friends of Plummer came out and threatened the doctor and said, you can save his arm or we're going to kill you. You better save his arm and his life or your life is not going to be spared. Yeah. So that just points to the kind of crowd that Plummer was running with still. Yeah, he's got some hard friends there. Yeah, I think the doctor believed him and I think I would too. Yep, and he saved it. It didn't work great, but he saved it. No, that's, <laughs> well, that's the thing is they didn't have to, uh, because he start, it started to swell up and he started to get a fever. So he didn't remove the ball. He removed a lot of bone fragments, but he was not able to remove the ball. And that kind of permanently crippled his hand to a degree. So. Not too great for a gunslinger. So not too long after that, Crawford leaves town. Nobody likes him anymore. He shoots people in the back. So <laughs> well, he's, he hides out for a bit, and then he kind of gauges the town sentiment, which is not great. So 
He heads to Fort Benton to go back east again. Yeah, he's gone now. He's out of the picture. And Plummer runs for sheriff and yeah. winds up getting elected at this point. So Yeah, this is uh, May 24th, 1863. He handily defeats his opponent, Jefferson Durley, winning a majority of the 554 votes cast. So it kind of tells you the voting scope there, how many people are voting in that town. Yeah. He doesn't stick around after getting elected. Just, a, I think, a day or two after <laughs> like being two elected. Two days, yeah. yeah. He appoints another man in charge in his stead named Dillingham. Didn't have a lot of experience. No, none to speak of. And in fact, probably wasn't the best candidate, but Plummer puts him in the position of taking care of things while he's gone, packs all his stuff up and goes back to the Vale farm to get Electa and bring her back to Bannock where he's now the sheriff. He's done it. He started over. Maybe it wasn't the best way and now his arm doesn't work, but he's been elected sheriff of Bannock and he's going to go and get his bride-to-be and come back and settle down. Right. That's first on his mind, of course. Uh, yes, getting uh, the new love of his life down to Bannock and starting his new career. However, it was kind of a blunder to leave so soon because he names D.H. Dillingham chief deputy, but then he names a couple of other deputies, which are known to be, again, quote, unquote, toughs. <laughs> so ruffians. And these guys are Ned Ray, Buck Stinson, and Jack Gallagher. And again, another notch to the possible undoing of Sheriff Plummer because he doesn't really give them a pecking order either. Yeah. He, he just kind of leaves them like, there you go. You, you three guys are deputies. Dillingham's the chief deputy. I'll see you maybe in a month or two. Right. And he takes off. And during the time that he's gone, a whole lot of stuff happens, not the least of which a big, big, big gold discovery in Alder Gulch, which is not where Bannock is. <laughs> and, and, and because Bannock to Virginia City is a full day's ride from dawn to dusk. Right. Yeah. That's one thing that's happening. So during the time that he's gone, Bannock is kind of emptying out, but there's another thing that goes down with the deputy that he left behind. So at this point, you might be wondering why a lot of the townsfolk or a majority of them would hire somebody like Plummer that they knew had a checkered past and killed a few guys, maybe in self-defense, maybe not. Well, as historian Clyde Milner puts it in his book, As Big as the West, The Pioneer Life of Granville Stewart, the people of Bannock knew what they were doing in electing Plummer as sheriff because, quote, they wanted someone whose experience and demeanor would enable him to control the criminal element. As the months passed, many came to believe that Plummer coordinated that element. So yeah. it's that fine line of like, well, he's kind of a tough guy, but he's civil enough that we can deal with him, at least during the day, and he's rough enough that he can handle these guys. They seem to be, there's some respect there. And he knows a lot of them already. So it's that weird thing of like hiring the fox to guard the hen house. Like, well, the fox knows his way around. So I'm sure he won't eat many of the chickens. Well, I always think of that company, Cincinnati Microwave, that makes radar detectors. Oh. They also make the radar guns. <laughs> well, so there you go. They the, got it working both ways. There. Right. The, <laughs> uh, the bullets and the band-aids. So what happens here is that, as we said, Plummer hires a couple of toughs that he knows to be the deputies. And you're thinking, why would he do that as well? Well, both of his hands now are not functioning very well, and he needs muscle. He can't draw a pistol very easily, so he needs some enforcers. As well as some other unsavory connections, he now forms a partnership with Cyrus Skinner, the ex-con, and Charles Ridgely, who are both inmates at San Quentin because they go into a business partnership. So he's kind of setting himself up, but not with great people. Another associate is a young man named Edward Richardson as a third mining partner. He was a young man from California 
that was also wanted on suspicion of murder. So he's partnering with this guy, and he's a, he's one of the younger guys, and he basically uh, skipped Carson City with a $750 bounty on his head and fled to Bannock. And there he shot a, killed a man in a bar fight, recording the town's fifth homicide. Yeah. And he makes him his third business partner in the mining concerns. So as Plummer is on his way to Sun River, the guy he leaves in charge, Deputy Dillingham, comes to believe that the other deputies, especially Buck Stinson, may be involved in some of the crime that's going around in the area. And he starts to suspect him more and more. And Buck Stinson was a barber by trade who worked at Cy Skinner's Elkhorn Saloon. So again, like not a lot of police training with these guys. They yeah. just like suddenly, yeah, you're the deputy. You got a gun. You can use it. There you go. Buck Stinson had also been traveling the roads a lot between Bannock and Alder Gulch with another rough, hard-drinking gambler named Hayes Lyons, who was also suspected of being a criminal in the area. So what happens is Dillingham, he tells his suspicions about Stinson and Lyons to George Washington Stapleton, one of the traveling companions, an important business person in the area. And then he relays that concern to one of his traveling companions, that traveling companion tells Stinson directly, kind of not very smart. Because then Stinson's like, wait, what do you mean that guy thinks I'm a criminal? Well, if you're already a criminal, now you're pretty pissed. Yeah. And not only that, it's not just a criminal. And the crime that we're talking about is these guys are road agents. They're holding up all these stagecoaches because with this new find in Alder Gulch and all this gold, all this gold is moving back and forth in these coaches and people are getting robbed all the time. Right. And that is the accusation. The accusation that, that Dillingham is making is that his own other appointed deputies that Plummer appointed him to work with before he left town to go 200 miles away and, and retrieve his bride was that these guys were involved in this. So, by the way, at that time, especially with a big fine like that, that's a pretty big haul you're getting. These people that are in these stagecoaches are carrying a lot of gold with them, in some cases hidden in canteens. There's one robbery where the canteens were all full of gold dust, but it felt about the same weight as water, and and they didn't get caught, even though they still got robbed. Yeah. No, they're going to strip you down, too, because they suspect that you got it hidden somewhere. Yeah, and Buck Stinson was not happy about being accused of being one of these people that couldn't be trusted on the road with right. this kind of stuff. So Here's kind of the setup of the boiling pot of anger here. Now Stinson's upset with the other deputy, the lead deputy, Dillingham. And Dillingham, as we said, tells George Washington Stapleton that this guy's bad news. Well, Stapleton ends up meeting Hayes Lyons, and Lyons asks him, he's like, hey, were you the one who's saying that uh, we're out to rob you? And, and he's like, please, I only have $100. And the guy goes, you know, fine, we're not here to rob you. That's insulting. And we vow revenge on Dillingham for slander. So then what happens on Monday, June 29th, 1863, a mining claim hearing was underway in a makeshift courtroom in Virginia City, kind of an open air tent affair. And it was a jovial afternoon. However, suddenly Stinson and Lyons burst in and announced to Charlie Forbes, who was a young man, he was kind of the court reporter at the time, crouching down next to the uh, judge, that Deputy Dillingham had just arrived in town. And the three rush out of the tent, run up to Dillingham on Wallace Street, cursing him as a liar and open fire, shooting him in the thigh and the chest. And Dillingham, it's reported, falls like an empty sack and bleeds to death within minutes. Of course, this is in front of everybody in broad daylight. In front of a trial with a judge. <laughs> with a judge. That's so, a pretty bold start yeah. to, a, to a murder. And on top of that, Charlie, the court reporter, he was pretty young. And then later he had said that he actually didn't fire a bullet. And some people had said that they had heard him saying, don't shoot, don't shoot. And then some people said, oh, that's a trick. He's trying to trick him. And then he actually shot. But then they examined his gun. Exactly. And found that he had not fired the gun. Well, Jack Gallagher 
one of the roughs hired by Plummer is the one who examined the gun. Yeah. And the presiding mining judge, Dr. William Steele, he has them all arrested. So basically, we got these guys red-handed, right. as they say. Seems pretty open and shut, doesn't it? Except that when you now start to have kind of a loose jury of a crowd sort, things change very quickly. So there's conflicting witness reports like Charlie Forbes, he said, don't shoot, don't shoot, but he was also firing at the same time. But when they examined his gun, they said it had not been fired. Exactly. Well, the judge agrees to try Forbes separately because he's a young man. He looked more gentlemanly and was well-spoken while Stinson and Lyons look like thug killers in the minds of the people of the day. That has a lot to do with the, how they thought about Henry Plummer as well. So by noon the next day, they were both convicted of murder, and a cry of, hang him, went up with the public jury. Yeah, the public jury again being, you just <laughs> like, kind of say, what should we do? And they go, ah, you know, kill him, don't kill him. And then right. that's how you make if it. If it decision. sounds like a majority of one side, like, well, sounds like this crowd's louder. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a game show. But that's how they did it when it wasn't a jury of your peers. And especially, you got to realize, these miners' courts, which is kind of what these were, like an open-air tribunal, these miners wanted to get this cleared quickly so they could go back to work and start getting more gold. They didn't want this thing dragging out for months with testimony. Well, so let's pull back and take a look at the, as you would say, the 10,000-foot view on this. What has happened here is that Plummer has left town, and he's going to be gone for a little while, and he appointed these people to take care of the town while he was gone. During his absence... The one chief deputy, Dillingham, accused the other deputies of being road agents and robbing everybody on all the roads between the mines. These guys get so upset about being accused of being road agents that they decide to commit murder, which there's absolutely zero logic in that. They kill (laughs) Dillingham. So now, while Plummer's away, his deputies not only are failing at their jobs, but they're killing each other. Yes, And on top of that, with the Alder Gulch find, Bannock is emptying out as well, so the whole landscape is changing. Exactly. People aren't staying in Bannock anymore because all the gold is a little bit northeast of Bannock. So the changes are all happening, and it's kind of, I always think about a, a, the Superman movie when he steps into the booth and he loses all his superpowers, and <laughs> that's when Zod yeah. busts out of the... Uh, the spinning ring. The forbidden yes, zone. right, the frozen ring. Yeah, the bad the, guys yeah. bust out and come down and wreak havoc on Earth right. while he's off making kissy-kissy with Lois Lane <laughs> in the <laughs> Fortress of Solitude. Right. Point being, yeah. a lot of stuff is going down while he's gone. His own guys are killing each other, and the town is changing, the landscape of everything is changing, and it's kind of sad for him because he's like, I've made myself sheriff. I'm going to bring oh. my wife back, and it's it's all falling apart. Yeah, bad timing on his part yeah. here because travel takes a very long time, but also... It was set, 200 miles away to where he had gone. Exactly, to Sun River. Yeah. Exactly, so it's a long ride, and what's happening is that he's making bad choices. He's not around to deal with stuff. He did before. I mean, he was kind of generally assumed to be a decent lawman because he would kind of handle stuff. But here, that's kind of falling apart. Sentiment is growing against him because these guys are are associates of his in some way. Although he's kind of sort of distancing himself from the carousing, but he's obviously connected. So what happens, though, is that being the younger man who looks well-spoken and intelligent, Forbes is cleared, again, because of the gun thing. And afterwards, the crowd's sentiment is divided about hanging Stinson and Lyons. They're like, well, because let's say we let him go. The attitude is like, that's not really fair if we hang these guys, we let this guy go. Yeah. So now the big crowd is debating and they're shouting going on. Well, what happens is Deputy Gallagher kind of walks up and declares that they've been cleared and the men are released. And he may or may not have been waving his gun in the air. So they choose the better of the two fates for them. Not great, but it's banishment. And they take an Indian pony and put the two guys in tandem on the horse 
slap them on the butt, get out of town. It kind of sounds like the Knights Templar, remember? That's right. <laughs> but that was because they were so uh, modest and humble and didn't have much money. They could only afford one horse between two guys. Yeah. And then the end of their story is that they're riding out of town. They pass the presiding mining judge, Dr. William Steele, and yell out and wave, bye, Doc. Yeah. <laughs> on their way out of town. And he later came to believe that Charlie Forbes actually did the shooting, that he shouted out, don't shoot, don't shoot, while shooting as a means of creating confusion in the crowd. Yeah. And that Deputy Gallagher replaced his bullets because right. he was in on it. Right. And that's, well, that's the judge's opinion. But what happened to Charlie Forbes is interesting. He slipped out of town and was really never seen again. However, many miners believed in the gold camps that they thought it was this guy, Edward Richardson, which was the third mining partner of Henry Plummer. That's a little weird. Is that also the guy that was wanted for murder, right? Yes. For the $750 bounty on his head. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. So again, if that's true or not or too weird, what it's doing is hammering this opinion about him with a lot of the people in these towns. Yeah. Alder Gulch, Bannock, and Virginia City. Sure. So that's the wrap-up of that strange little story of uh, guys getting away with murder because of the fickleness of the crowd jury system. One thing we haven't talked too much about yet regarding Blue Apron is their fantastic website. I know. It's, it's a really great resource, and you can tell they put a lot of effort into it because BlueApron.com is not just a place to go if you want to pick your meals or manage your delivery schedule. It's also a great place to really learn a lot about how to make a great meal. Yeah, they have a ton of great information over there, like videos on basic skills such as how a chef holds a knife or the best way to peel garlic or de-seed a lemon without making a mess. There's also a blog where you can learn a lot about how to pair wines with different meals or how to care for your cast iron skillet or even how to choose the best ingredients for your own recipes. And of course, they have free recipes. And they now have an iPhone app so you can manage your meals on the go. The website or app is a great way to take advantage of the flexibility of Blue Apron because if you're going out of town, you can skip a delivery, change the delivery day, or rate the meals you've tried, or customize the recipes based on you or your family's preferences. You can even purchase wines if allowed in your area and top-notch kitchen supplies through the site. All of this plus amazing food delivery. Just go to blueapron.com slash astonishing to check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping. That's right. Just go to blueapron.com slash astonishing. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron. A better way to cook. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Mindy Dahl. Now, back to the show. All right, so you're wondering what happened to Henry because he's been gone so long? Well, the first week of July 1863, Henry Plummer returns with his new bride, Electa, yes. back to Bannock. It's a start of a new life where <laughs> he comes back and, wait, what, deputies have been shooting each other? What the heck? Yeah. Not only that, there's this huge gold find. That's a, right. A That's what happened. A lot of people have left town. Yep. It's a little bit of a mess. Yeah. It's disjointed. It's dysfunctional. The town has been drained because they all went to Alder Gulch to work the claims. But the first sign of trouble kind of with Henry's life, I guess, or his new ambition was that he was applying to be... A territorial federal marshal. You know, yes. he was ambitious. He was an ambitious guy. He may have thought he did nothing wrong in his past, that he was just falsely accused and in the wrong place at the wrong time, but he meant to clean up his act and he 
had ambitions for higher office. And settling down. Exactly. Being a better man. Exactly. So it in, seems in, anyway. And doing it in Bannock, which may have been the territorial capital of the region. So he puts in a, an application. He tries to get endorsed. But then Nathaniel Langford was talking to his friend Samuel T. Hauser, who was a very influential miner, became a very rich man yes. uh, in cattle and mining. A hardworking guy who did really well and... Langford mentions that they were going to put up Plummer for recommendation to this post, and Hauser flips out. He's like, no, this guy's a criminal. You can't yeah. do that. We can't have this guy as a federal marshal. I don't care how good he sounds now. No way. You shouldn't do that. And so he really campaigns against him, and that convinces Langford that, yeah, the sheriff was a dangerous man. And Hauser was right, because here's this guy who, well, he, he's... He's done well so far. He must know what he's talking about. And he had maybe some inside information about this guy, or that was just a gut feeling. So he kind of trusts him. It's like, well, maybe he is a bad choice yeah. for federal office. Here, fine. In the town of Bannock, that's okay. But don't put this guy in the party ticket, kind of. Langford meets with Plummer and tells him they are not going to foster him. They are not going to support him. And Plummer does not take it well. And here we see a little bit of a flash, and I want to read this quote. According to Langford, anyway, Langford, you'll be sorry for this before the matter ends. I've always been your friend, but from this time on, I'm your enemy. And when I say this, I mean it in more ways than one. And then he turned to go. So what does that mean in more ways than one? You're going to try and kill me? Like, so that freaks out Langford. But Langford is the one that said that Plummer said that. Langford exactly. is also... Much like Thomas Dimsdale, to, who a lot of things are attributed to, who was a journalist, who was very pro-vigilante. These emerging vigilante groups are coming down the pike here. And he wrote in flowery, very biased language. Absolutely. He was melodramatic in his yeah. speech. But that's how he wrote it. And you don't really know if that's exactly what he said. It's very theatrical, some yes. of the dialogue, some of the reported quotes. Right. It's pretty interesting. And and I take Langford with a grain of salt because I feel like he was very concerned with his place in history. And I get the feeling that Alan thought that too in his book yes. about Langford. But conversely, that makes me sound like I'm coming out supporting the idea that Plummer was falsely accused, and I'm not. I am honestly trying to be the devil's advocate. I'm trying to yeah. look at all sides of this story. And what I've noticed from the research that we've done is that everything is very colored in oh, every sure. direction. Yeah. So it's hard to know the reality of it. And as we already said, and we've talked about this before when we've discussed the Old West, people are reinventing themselves, pretending to be other people, uh, faking their own deaths. There right. are uh, 10 people are being the same person, possibly, in the case of Jesse James. <laughs> you could do and, that back yeah, then. Yeah, you know. could do that back then. And then also, people are very aware of how the documentation of events are emerging and uh, publications are coming into play and in right. newspapers and books and people are prone to maybe exaggerating a little bit to support their own point of view, not yeah. only in words, but in actions. And Well, it's, you have to take emotion and motivations into it. And you bring up a good point because at the time here, the actual rate of murders was not as much as people were kind of inflating it or talking about. Yeah. So that's the thing I like about Frederick Allen's book is that he goes to memoirs and corroborates stories from people and see if it holds any water. But here's a good case in point. Plummer was doing his job here and there, even though he didn't believe in kind of a mob mentality and lynching, he was outspoken about it. There was a case where there's two miners, Peter Horan and Lawrence Keeley, getting in a fight. Horan shoots Keeley in cold blood. 
over the proceeds of selling their one of their claims, I guess. So Plummer rounds him up and he takes him to a miners' court and they convicted him of murder and sentenced him to death. So Plummer is ordered to build a gallows and, you know, he's doing his job. So he did that. And so he's kind of following the law here. And uh, even though it's kind of still a rough miners' court, but when it's something clear cut like that and the guy was obviously guilty, he's kind of playing along. But as far as Peter Horan's concerned, he was only the second man executed in Montana after the Stewart brothers hung a guy for uh, horse thievery. But among white settlers, Allen reports here, that that Keeley's was the eighth homicide in a year. So that was far less than kind of what was generally being rumored about at the time. However, as he also says, and I made this point earlier, even though it would have qualified as a murder spree in a sedate city back east. So within a year, if eight people are killed, murdered, and uh, you come from a little small peaceful town, that's going to seem like a crime wave. Yeah. And that's kind of what we're saying is that Bannock was pretty sedate for the most part. Yeah, it was rowdy. People drank and they went to dance halls and stuff. But generally, people were trying to make a living. So, you know. Speaking of which, once a week there was a dance. And just to talk a little bit about Electa now that she'd come back, I guess she never, she didn't go to the dance. She didn't get out much. Right. But supposedly she enjoyed the life there better than she did back at the Sun River Ranch. Oh, yeah, that's very pretty bleak. isolated yes, no, and bleak. Was, yeah. She actually wrote a letter back to her family, though, about life in Bannock saying not to send nice things, but to send practical things because yeah. she wouldn't be wearing nice things. But she was making the best of her life in Bannock. And we'll cover that in a minute because she didn't stay all that long. No, yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> It's getting real brief here. Yeah. One interesting thing that happened to color the town's opinion was that Plummer actually gave kind of a tell-all strange interview to a reporter from the Sacramento Union. Part of it was he was taking him around showing him his claims previously. He was, I guess all miners brag a little bit. That's the, the quote we said about uh, Mark Twain saying it's a hole dug by a liar. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah the, there's some bragging going on on how much gold and uh, valuables you've uh, taken out of there. Also, he was covering the crimes that he was associated with back in Northern California, Nevada City. Like, yeah, in this case, I that was self-defense. Yeah. Again, it's a weird way of clearing your name or addressing it of like, I want to set the story straight. So this is what happened. Right. News traveled very slowly. And finally, that article makes it to Bannock and people are like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. you, you did what? <laughs> like, that? oh, I didn't know that because I don't hang around those rough types. That's one more thing to kind of shade people's opinions, not everybody, again, because probably at the town, it's maybe half divided for and against or suspicious of Plummer and those not having one idea one way or the other, but suspicions are growing. That's the point. So talking about Electa, guess what? Decides to up and move back east on September 2nd, 1863, takes a small suitcase with her, snatches up her clothes and boards the stagecoach bound for Salt Lake City, which is due south of Bannock. Yeah. The reason that this is super weird is that her family, the Vale family, were in the process of moving to Bannock yeah. at this point. <laughs> wanted to be close to her. Yeah. yeah. And her good friend, Francis Thompson, who yes. plays a key part in this story and was who was also very close with Henry Plummer, lived there in the area. So the real question is, why did she take off? And nobody knows. No one has any idea why she left. And Plummer was so concerned that he apparently rode along next to her coach for several days trying yeah. to convince her to come back. Oh, and that's romantic. It is. It's very sweet. But yeah. it, 
Didn't work. It didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. And here's something that's really fascinating. On their way out, they bumped into somebody coming in. Oh. And this is extremely yes. interesting. Mm -hmm. It was actually Sidney Edgerton and his family who had come to the area. Edgerton was the chief justice of Idaho as appointed by Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, a friend of his. Yeah. And he was coming to town to start getting things in order and try to see what he can get done in terms of right. governmental control over the area. But they crossed paths, and Edgerton described Plummer as a very nice man, and they enjoyed meeting, and they talked and exchanged pleasantries, and there were there were no issues there. He was impressed with him, as people always seem to be when they first meet Plummer. And Plummer continued on with Electa, but he was unable to convince her to turn back. So there's conjecture about why she would do this. Her family's coming down. Again, that's from Sun River, where it was bleak, and they had a better opportunity. Look, Bannock was kind of rough and dinky and unimpressive. That's I think that's what the Edgertons said. You know, it's a mining town, so it's not real fancy, but better than uh, Sun River. So that's a long trip for them. They finally come down, and why did she leave? Now, there's some theories that... Maybe she had some of Plummer's stolen gold dust, and she was hightailing it out of there with part of it yeah. to meet and to meet up with him later. So there's no indication that Plummer ever had a big cash, and that's what he did with it. He has, but you know what is interesting yeah. in light of that, now that we're just now talking about right. it? The fact that he rode along with her, what a cover if they had planned together to extract some oh, stolen gold. Yeah. He rides along, tells everyone in town he's going to try to convince his true love to stay, when in fact what he's doing is guarding her until she gets to safe territory. That is an interesting and awesome idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it only just now occurred to me. You know, people have thought about that. Like, what if it was some kind of plan, like, or she was carrying part of it, or he was, and they meet up, like, at a station to say their final farewells. It's an opportunity for him to get out of town without too much detection. You got to realize when he was going out of town, people were saying, he's striking another claim. He's found another mother load. Yeah. That's what they did back or then. Or he's they going wanted... to rob somebody. Or he was, yeah, he was, <laughs> he was scouting somebody or, or stalking them. That's what the suspicions were as we approach this timeline here, because things really heat up now. We're in the thick of it between October and December 1863. So Yeah, he used to just call people on the phone so much, would <laughs> hang up on them. <laughs> the dead. telegraph. Like, what the? Did you get my present? Right. What's weird is that due to a lack of communications back then, it was all chitter-chatter. People are gossiping in the saloons and where they sat down uh, at the restaurants there. Not many of them be, at the time, but yeah, there's a lot of time to pass. There's a lot of gossip flying around. And so these suspicions are building. It's like, why did Plummer take off? Is he checking on a, an acclaim? So that's one thing is that they thought that he was going to strike it rich because he, he had a lot of mining knowledge and he knew what he was doing. So people listened to him. So basically that is a pretty good idea that he's riding along because there is the legend of Henry Plummer's gold somewhere out there that... Maybe he did have a stash somewhere. That money and that all that gold dust, although not seemed to be spent lavishly by any of these guys, had to go somewhere. Tens of millions of dollars, right? Hadn't you at in, one point in you had read? 14, uh, yeah, 20 in, in today's terms, because when we're talking about the robberies here coming up, we're talking about amounts of like twelve thousand dollars at the time of yeah, gold dust. That's a lot. Yeah, and gold, gold dust, was eighteen fifty. That's right. Back then, that's yeah. right. Can you imagine? It's millions of dollars out there somewhere. How so. much is it now? I don't even know. It's 500 or something? Uh, of what? An ounce? Yeah. Dude, it's 1,200 something. Oh, 1,200. Yeah. yeah. See, shows what yeah. I know. Well, I bought a gold coin a long time ago just to see what it was like, just to have one. They're quite impressive. But I think gold was 380 
That's what that I remember. I remember looking at 300 and then it was five. Yeah, yeah. you're exactly right. It's 1263.30 right now. Oh, the there live you go. gold price, as I just now looked it up. Boy, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Why? The, the, no, I, I, no uh, one thing about gold, what they say is that it not always. Not getting rich from gold. <laughs> it's Scott Philbrook. <laughs> it, it, you know what? There's an interesting saying that it always buys what it buys because there's a standard. If you think about paper money, well, that's kind of pretend. It's actually paper. A gold coin is made out of gold. Yes. It is actually precious itself. It's and not I like the stock I was also just market. reading like the ultra low percentage of money that's actually in circulation. It's oh, really? Like, yes. You know, well, nowadays, sure. Or something. Everything's right. electronic. Right. So it's if not you, even if, real. Right. So figure what you can buy nowadays with $1,200 of gold. And back then the prices were inflated in Bannock because people were loaded with gold dust. So the things that gold will buy you, one ounce of gold is relative throughout the years. Yeah. Over 150 years, $1,200 will buy you about the same stuff that an ounce of gold back in Bannock would buy you. Right. You know, so I didn't do a very good job of explaining that, but that's kind of the basic idea is that gold dust is actually worth something. So wherever it's at out there, buried in the hills, Mount Baldy or wherever, it's waiting to be found, and it's worth millions. You ask me about the mystery of Henry Plummer. There's a treasure mystery, certainly, tied yeah. to that. Because, again, people got robbed Where'd in large go? amounts. Especially if he's a mastermind. Where'd it go? Exactly. So, uh, so, Even if it's yeah. just his cut. His cut is worth a fortune. Right. You know? So that's part of the suspicion is that, yeah, maybe Henry's not out there with the bandana holding people up, but somehow people are getting tipped off to these. And he can't be because he doesn't have the use of his hands. Right. He, he's not a gunslinger anymore, but he can still plan and he knows all these guys, it seems. Right. He may be taking a cut uh, here and there of certain robberies that he's tipping them off to. Ones that he's not following up on very judiciously. That's the other thing that's happening. I mean, they're reporting these crimes, and it doesn't seem like he's doing a whole lot to go after the people that are the perpetrators. Exactly. So whether Electa had any gold dust on her or not, or why she left so suddenly, because she claimed that she was going to wait for Henry in the East. What seems most likely is that she'd heard something about him that was very displeasing and connected to Bannock. Yeah. That she wanted to get away fast and wanted him eventually to leave that place and come join her back home in Ohio, I believe. So she was going back east, east enough to Ohio. That seems likely because it was just very strange. Even the family friend, Francis Thompson, who we talked about a little bit earlier, ambitious businessman and town leader of sorts, mm -hmm. smart guy. And really good friends with Plummer. Good friends with Plummer because they'd shared the same household and they'd all met each other up in Sun River. So he became one of Plummer's close friends in town, but also had tremendous suspicion. One example is that Francis Thompson was traveling and found some guys to travel with him. Like we said, it's much safer to travel with other people. And he said some of the, the Indians on the way were hostile. And he met a guy named Doc Howard, who claimed he was a, trained as a physician at Yale, and his nickname was Doc. And there were some other members of the party, James Romaine. These guys struck Thompson as being very well-educated. Again, people are going by their visual impressions of these people's personalities and how well they can trust them. And, you know, thanks, these are fine fellows. So anyway, he gets back into town. He tells Henry Plummer when he meets him on Main Street and he describes his trip and the guys that he just met. And he tells Plummer like, hey, these guys said they were old friends of yours and they spoke very highly of you. And Plummer got freaked out after he heard the names repeated back to him and he got very agitated. And he said, Thompson, those men are cutthroats and robbers. There will be hell to pay now. And he warned Thompson not to hang out with these guys any further. So 
that made Thompson kind of wonder. It's just like, wait, how does he know these guys? And how does he know that these guys are cutthroats and robbers? Well, didn't Doc Howard have a little association back in San Quentin? Yeah, Doc Howard's actual name was David Renton, and he was not a doctor, but he was an ex <laughs> Really? Not a doctor? Yeah, yeah. not a doctor. Yeah. Like I said, you could call yourself whatever you want back then. That's uh, true. He had been in San Quentin, and it's weird. He went through the exact same thing at San Quentin that Plummer did, where he befriended the doctor in the infirmary and became a trustee, as Alan puts it, T-R-S-T-E-Y, yeah. I guess was allowed to work in the infirmary and help the doctor, and eventually a pardon was issued for him. He had been sentenced to five years hard labor, and his family managed to get him a pardon, and he got out of San Quentin. It's pretty much the exact same thing with the same doctor, Dr. Talia Farrow. A little bit fishy, mm. I don't know how that works. Mm. But they're just turning dudes out of the infirmary there. Well, but, it's an easier place to work. Again, that place was awful. And yeah. so if you could work in the hospital and like Plummer was allowed to go run errands for him. So yeah. that meaning trusty. But anyway, it's very odd. And it starts to make Francis Thompson, again, one of Plummer's close friends there, even doubt him. How does he know these guys? What is his connection? And... Then he starts to think back about their pleasant camping trip. Like, well, that guy, Doc, was asking me a lot of questions. Where was I going? I was going to pick up merchandise. Fortunately for him, Thompson, he didn't have any money on him. So they kind of just remained pleasant and let him go, yeah. is his thinking. So, But again, even with his close friends and associates, start to doubt Plummer's connections. All right, man, are you ready for Detroit next week? <laughs> In a word, no. <laughs> we we got to get it together. I know. Technically, this is our first business trip. Mm -hmm. I got to tell you, though, I love Detroit. I went there a long time ago for a gig, and I had a great time. Yeah, it's a great city. Uh, you know, it's strange to think of ourselves as business travelers, but now that we are, if we're going to do any more live appearances, we got to start taking advantage of our new sponsor, Upside.com. Seriously, we, we actually could have gotten an Amazon gift card worth one, two, or even $300 if we'd have booked this trip with them. If I'd have known about them when we bought our tickets, I would have used them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Upside.com is the best way to do business travel. And if you're not doing any yourself, but have friends that do, do them a favor and tell them about this new company. What they're doing is such a simple idea, and it works great. They bundle your flights and hotel together to get you one low price. Bundle pricing saves money, especially on business travel. So you get these Amazon gift cards as a way of getting some of that savings back in your own pocket. On top of that, you still get to keep all your frequent flyer miles. So if you're shopping for business travel or know someone who is, tell them to check out Upside.com, where it only takes three minutes to find out how much you can save by buying your flights and hotel together for one low price. It's kind of hard to believe nobody's done something like this before. To take advantage of it, just go to Upside.com. That's U-P-S-I-D-E dot com. And once you're there, click on the words radio listeners. That works for podcast listeners, too. They'll never know. That's right. So click on radio listeners. It's up at the top of the page next to the little microphone icon. Then enter our promo code BIZTRIP. That's B-I-Z-T-R-I-P. And not only are you going to save big money on travel, but you're guaranteed to get at least a $100 Amazon gift card on your first trip. Start saving big on travel with Upside.com and get a big gift card with every trip, which for us is great. We need all the kickbacks we can get. I mean, that's the truth. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. Hi, I'm Aaron, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. 
So now that we're in the hot zone here between October and December of 1863, the rate of murders and robberies, at least seemingly, seemed to spike in Alder Gulch, where most of the prospecting was being done. And this is at a time when the season's kind of closing up. I think they poked around and mined and did some stuff in the winter, but it's much harder. It's freezing there. It's very cold. So people are now packing up to go take their earnings, and as we said before, go to the States. Commute. Head back east. Yes, yeah, commute, commute back home exactly. for a little bit. Right, because if you were a merchant, you had creditors to pay off, you had debts to pay, you had your family maybe back, like the Scotsman, he's going to send money back to his wife. So that's when big money is traveling on the roads yeah, between I mean, Alder Gulch and Bannock and Virginia City. And the weather and the conditions are bad enough that they protect your claim from anything happening to it while you're gone because you, it was not a good time of year to be out there trying to do anything. Right, right, exactly. So October 13th, 1863, very well-to-do and successful Idaho merchant Lloyd Magruder is on his way back from Virginia City with $12,000 in gold dust he'd made from selling his supplies there, selling his wares. And he's on his way back to Lewiston, Idaho. But unfortunately for him, unknowingly, he hires four guys to accompany him for safety, and they turn out to be road agents, which was the term for highway robber of the time. So and this is from Peter Watts' Dictionary of the Old West. A road agent, a highway robber, a thief who generally at gunpoint stopped stagecoaches to rob passengers of their possessions or if the vehicle carried mail or bullion, that. So taking mail, of course, was a federal offense as it is now. So they would basically stop these on the road because that's when the possessions traveled. They waited for the best hauls, of course, because you're taking a risk. These stagecoach drivers were armed as well as the passengers of the time. So the element of surprise is your best friend here. So yeah, unfortunately, Lloyd Magruder is killed while they were in camp by road agent Chris Lowry and three of his desperado buddies. Yeah, and this is a particularly gruesome crime. And the interesting thing about this is that there were people, in fact, a hotel proprietor who was really close friends with Magruder, saw these guys in town and thought they looked fishy. And they were That's concealing right. their faces. Yeah. They would pull their scarves away. I mean, it was literally, it's almost like a joke. Yeah. What do you try to do to keep people from <laughs> seeing you right. without totally wearing a mask? You know. Yeah. And it turned out that those guys were, in fact, the ones that wound up killing him because he didn't come back. But you know what? We know this now. And the, the details yes. you're sharing were figured out later. But initially, he just disappeared. And they couldn't That's true. find him. And one of the men was brought in and wound up confessing that he had been there and explained everything that happened, and they were viciously murdered with axe blows to the head. Oh, geez. While and they were sleeping in camp, I believe, While right? they were sleeping in camp. One of them was shot with a shotgun in the head. Mm. It was a particularly bad, gruesome scene. Yeah. And eventually the bodies were recovered several months later. Uh. But, yeah, it was a horrible crime, and, you know, that's certainly going to put people on edge. Right. Wasn't there a paranormal twist, of course? Well, this, this is the interesting thing. The man who was concerned about Magruder's safety was a man named Hill Beachy. Yeah. Who owned the Luna Hotel. Right, the Luna House Hotel. The Luna House Hotel. Hill had had a dream that Magruder had been attacked by an axe-wielding man. Wow, there you go. Yeah, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was the one who, he did get concerned when he saw these guys trying to check in because they were asking could they buy stagecoach tickets for the morning. They said, no, well, we take money here, the clerk told them, but you'll have to kind of hang out until the morning. And uh, yeah, that's they didn't what they have did. tickets. They just put a name on a list. There you go. Always right. that. By the way, yeah. the names were all <laughs> obvious aliases that they used. In yeah. Town, so. Again, bunglers, not very skilled, but just like today, 
you know, yeah. dumb criminals, but murderous ones. So that was pretty gruesome. So on October 26th, 1863, a few days later here, two road agents thought to be Frank Parrish and George Ives robbed the Peabody and Caldwell stagecoach while it was traveling from Virginia City between Rattlesnake Ranch and Bannock. So this one has an interesting little twist that's a bit comical, I guess you could say. Bill Bunton, who was the owner of the Rattlesnake Ranch, which is one of the stagecoach stops, decides he's going to get on the stagecoach and ride it for one of the segments, which is, don't you have work to do? Like, why are you? Yeah. No, 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 this sounds like fun. I'm going to join you guys. So he sits up top for a while. And again, this is, it's getting chilly out there. So he sits up top in the box, as they say, and then he comes back inside. About an hour later. Yeah. yeah, into the coach here. Now, he's known as, he's another criminal character here. He was a big drinker and gambler with a quarrelsome reputation. Bunton apparently killed a man in a fight over a horse race in a bar. Of course, he got off saying it was self-defense. That seems to be the common running theme here. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, he kind of skipped town like so many of these guys do. So his new venture is the Rattlesnake Ranch, where there's some livestock. You can trade for fresh horses. You can stay overnight, get a meal and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and, the, and yeah. the people that stopped there described him as very generous with the whiskey and a, and, exactly. and a good host. Yes, very good host. So they all like that. But what happens is that turns out there's one passenger on this stagecoach kind of a character himself, and his name is Bummer Dan McFadden, and he's an Irish miner, and the reason he's called Bummer Dan is that he used to bomb a lot of supplies and food off of the other miners. It seems like, hey, this guy's kind of lazy. Like, he would just borrow supplies, be short on cash here and there. However, he got industrious one season, and he struck it rich. Yeah. And, of course, like a lot of miners, was bragging about it, boasting about it. But he tried to be very cautious about it when it came time to slip out of town, because he knew that people followed you. It's like following you from the parking lot there at the casino. Yeah. Got to be careful. Robbers know that. So he ducked out in the middle of the night, and I think made it to the next stagecoach stop to catch the stage there. So people didn't see him actually. Oh yeah, he went on foot, I believe. Yeah, he yeah. kind of, right. So he he's didn't even take the coach. No, he's being he's kind of sneaky. <laughs> being a little sneaky, but he humps on. Wasn't aware of old Bill Bunton though. So they're on the coach. Guess what? They get stopped by road agents. That's right. He starts freaking out and he starts yelling, for God's sake, don't shoot. Take what I have, <laughs> but don't kill me. <laughs> I'm I'm, uh, they, I'm also picturing a little vaudevillian stage of the era, like, please don't shoot. Yeah, yeah, gonna, yeah just very dramatic. But it raises suspicions of the other passengers. Yeah, like, they're not Dude, come it. on. Yeah. Really? First was, you want to hop on the stage, and now you're you're making the scene basically to say, well, one, to tip off the guys, like, don't kill me. I'm I'm in on it. So. Yeah. Well, they probably knew that. Right. But, uh, but Bum- he's probably their boss. <laughs> he's possibly. Now, here's the thing. So it turns out it's very likely as well, not only is that Bill Button doing something weird with, with the acting there, but Bummer Dan was targeted. Somebody knew he had sachets yes. of gold dust because they, of course, hands up, stand by the side of the road. He produces a... A little pouch, buckskin, I believe, full of gold dust. And that's probably several hundred dollars, maybe a thousand dollars right there. Yeah. And they got furious. It's like, we know you're holding out. Yeah, they said, where's your main stash? Where's your main stash? We know this isn't it, buddy. Right. And then he had to get out some elaborate holster thingy. He did. Take his jacket <laughs> off. Strap yeah. and pull it up out of his pants. Yeah. Reluctantly, of course, because that was the main nut there for his holding. So that seems a little weird too, is that they target this specific guy. Well, then you're thinking, all right, how does this tie in with Plummer? Well, it was believed that Plummer was a secret partner, co-owner of the Rattlesnake Ranch with Bill Button, and that they had known each other previously through criminal activity and possibly jail time. So 
again, a few people knew that. Again, more suspicions are growing. And the other thing that was kind of interesting about tying Plummer in with this, and this is all speculation, of course, there's nothing concrete about it, but it started to make people think when you're leaving town, especially in Bannock, you load up on supplies. It's a long, arduous, hard traveling trip wherever you're going. And they would go into the general stores and buy supplies and go into the outfitters to stock up for the trip. Well, one of them was George Chrisman's general store. Plummer had a desk in there that he was friends with George Chrisman. And he let him use it as an office, one quarter of the store. Yeah. So when people came in and say like, ah, I'm headed up with my gold, I'm going up to Virginia City, or I'm going down south to Salt Lake City, I'm going to catch the train or whatever it is back. Guess who knew where they were going sitting and how right much there. they were carrying? Sitting right there. Yeah. That also made people very suspicious. Again, it's not definite proof. He knew what he was doing. But as these are happening, people are getting wary because it's like, how do they know when the stages leave? Sure, you can hang out there in the cold waiting for these stagecoaches to come by because there was quite a bit of travel at this point. But especially in the case of Bummer Dan, it seemed like there was some inside information. Bummer Dan, not to be confused with Debbie Downer. <laughs> Debbie Downer. Because Dan wasn't, ex- yeah. he wasn't sad, he just kept no. borrowing stuff. He was a little lazy, but <laughs> but he struck it rich and yeah. uh, he went back to town and uh, Then everybody and was bumming everybody. stuff from him. Not anymore, he didn't have any money. Because yeah, they, they went true. back to town and they started telling people, and they're starting to talk what happened, and that's when suspicions raised, like Bill Button? Yeah. That's a little strange, you know. Yeah, we, what was could, he doing there? And not only that, it's yeah. not only scary to them, you know, if they're in fear of their lives, you can also lose a year's worth oh, of earnings God, yeah. in five minutes. Yeah. It's just your whole life for a year taken, taken right there on the road. You can't pay your creditors for all of the, your supplies right. in town. Your family can't have anything to eat, especially if you're the man and the wife and children are back somewhere yeah. at, at the homestead. It was tough. You're screwed. But there's other little things that come up here. There's lots of bits. We can't cover them all, and certainly we don't want to bore you with them. But one instance that I thought was interesting, Neil Howie was a miner, and he later served as sheriff of Helena, Montana, very capable guy, very trustworthy. He claimed that Plummer approached him one day and was kind of griping about how hard mining was to make a living at. And then he kind of added cryptically, I can tell you an easier way. Yeah. Like, and then how he's like, I don't want to I don't want to know this. Yeah, I don't want to know about it. Because he suspected. It's like, I don't want to tell you because, again, if somebody tells you that, you might be a problem further on down the line that needs to be dealt with. So yeah. we see a little bit of that too. So any case, so here we come upon a case that is closer to Plummer's identification, we could say. Yeah. And that is when a teenager named Henry Tilden, he was traveling with the Edgertons. They traveled as a group. Yeah. And that reminds me, I wanted to talk about the Edgertons a little bit. Oh, sure. When I had indicated that the Edgerton family passed Plummer and Electa as he was trying to convince her not to go out of town. Yes. And or guarding the gold she was taking. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Which is pure speculation on my part. Yeah. But when they passed... Edgerton had come to the area, as I said, to become the new chief justice. But the thing was, when he got there, there was nothing. They didn't know where the capital was going to be. That's there right. were no structures in place to deal with it, either in a brick and mortar situation or in terms of any other organizational situation. It was essentially, he was an employee sent to a place where the factory hadn't been built. And he didn't have an ability to really do anything. So right. he started to just try to make his family comfortable, get their cabin set up. And he he took a survey of the land, but when he got there, it was just after Henry Plummer had hanged the one miner that had been involved in that dispute, Horan, that Plummer had built the gallows for. Yeah. So if Edgerton were to take a look around as chief justice, he'd say, well, this guy seems to have things under control, and I met him, he seems like a nice guy. 
you know, and I trust him and from what little I know about him. And so things were calm, but also the Edgerton seemed to be very, very cagey. He was very careful about not getting involved. And at first I mistook it for maybe a reluctance to perform, but I think it was actually more him being careful because he had aspirations for governorship. He's kind of hanging back, seeing yeah. what hap- how this plays out. How everything works. Right. And here's another interesting thing about him. There was a group called the Fisk Expedition, of which there were several. I think there were four. There yeah. may have been more. And the second expedition, which happened in, I believe, 1866, you know, that's where they get all this money together and all these people, like 100 people, and they they set out to break new ground and establish businesses and that sort of thing. And Fisk was the leader of this. He had completed this expedition and gone through some bad Indian country where they were concerned about being attacked and he had a small howitzer with him. And when he got there, he, of course, went to see Edgerton, who he probably knew because they were probably cronies. Edgerton was friends with Lincoln and that sort of thing. Right. And Fisk is running these expeditions. And he said, hey, you know what? You can have this howitzer. I don't need it anymore. And... Edgerton said, okay, and he put it under his bed yeah. and kind of forgot about it because he was not in a position of needing it. It's going to come up later, so I, I just wanted to place that. But I did want to explain that Edgerton was there, but he wasn't really doing anything. You know who else wasn't seeming to do anything was Sheriff Plummer. I, this was from the last robbery. That's reported by Granville Stewart in his diary because there was big news. He was reporting that uh, going back to the last robbery, McFadden had lost $2,500. And yes. I think a few other hundred were scraped up from the other passengers, but that's quite a lot of money. In yes. today's term, it would be tens of thousands of dollars. So anyway, yeah, that just reminded me, though, when you said uh, not doing anything. Yeah. Uh, that's the other quote from Granville Stewart. So far as I can learn, no steps have been taken to discover who the robbers are or to punish them. Yeah. So didn't seem like much was happening on that front. Again, more suspicion towards Plummer. Before I went on to explain who Edgerton yes. was as the chief justice of the area, who was, like I said, not doing a whole lot in right. the early days anyway, they had traveled with a youngster who was a family friend named Henry Tilden, who was, I believe, 15 or 16 years old. Yes. And that's who you were just about to tell our listeners about. Exactly. So he was traveling with the family. They would take other people with them to learn and earn their fortunes and uh, relieve some stress at home, I think. And they sent Henry out to round up a cow that had gone stray somewhere in a pasture somewhere. So he was out near, uh, I think, Horse Prairie. And he gets held up by three road agents. Now, he's a teenager, and so he doesn't have any money on him. At least teenagers then didn't have much. So they cursed him out and let him go. But they said, like, look, if you tell anybody, we're going to kill you. And he's freaked out. Yeah, he was scared to death. He puts his horse into a full gallop and is headed back to town, and actually the horse... Yeah, he ran, ran into, into a, a ditch. Yeah, yeah, he ran into a ditch, and there, he was knocked out cold. Yeah, well, here's an important factor. There was a heavy snow happening, and I think snow falling that was very heavy, so he's freaked out, he's galloping, he knocks him out, he regains his consciousness, he goes back home. Yeah. So, of course, he goes and tells somebody, he runs right home, and he tells Wilbur Sanders' wife, Hattie. Uh, Wilbur Sanders is also Sidney Edgerton's nephew. Yes. And Wilbur Sanders is a prominent lawyer yes. of the time and goes on to... Uh, Prosecute. Yeah, he goes on to uh, be a United States senator from Montana. But he was also a reluctant prosecutor for the vigilantes later yes. on. So that's how he's tied with Edgerton. So he goes running in there, and I believe Edgerton is there as well, Sidney. And Henry Tilden tells him... He'd just been held up, and one of the guys, who was he? 
Sheriff Henry Plummer. Right. And they're like, oh, come on. Come on. They, now, you know, he was only 15 or 16, so right. they were like, oh, it's his imagination. Yeah, he's scared, witless. He doesn't know what he saw. And then they ask, well, how could you possibly know? And this is what Alan actually said in his book, quote, Tilden's answer was that he recognized Plummer's revolver. They felt that was unconvincing. Hundreds of men wore revolvers, and the weapons were so similar as to be indistinguishable under such conditions, which was in the dark of night. Yeah. Tilden also added that he had seen the flash of a red lining inside Plummer's overcoat, a detail that seemed a bit more convincing. I believe Plummer was known to wear a black coat a lot of the time, and it had a red lining in it. And that was more identifiable. Well, they told Tilden, young Henry there, don't tell anybody about this because don't go tell the sheriff. <laughs> of course, you, you suspect him. But anybody, because we don't know who's connected to this, keep this under your hat. But from that day forward, he was so scared that after work at the uh, clerk's office, he would run all the way home. Yeah. So he always believed it. There's the first instance, you have to think about the logic of it. Would the sheriff himself really go out in a snowstorm to try and do some road agency, even wearing a mask of some kind? Who knows? Again, young uh, Henry believed it, but how likely is the story? So again, not terribly great proof. Eyewitness accounts are often faulty and strained by different things like emotion and weather and uh, vision. It's night. There's a lot of factors going on here. So, But it's the first time really he's named in person or one of the major times he's named in person as a suspect. So that happened. Right. So the other thing that's going on this night is the reason that Wilbur Sanders wasn't there was because he had been instructed to ride off and shadow Plummer because people are getting suspicious now, including Edgerton, Sanders' uncle and a lot of other people in town. And Plummer had said that he was riding out to Rattlesnake Ranch because one of the partners at Rattlesnake Ranch was deathly ill, and he was married to an Indian woman, and they were concerned that she was going to make off with all the horses. Well, if, if he, he died, if yeah, he died. you know, yeah. kind of her inheritance, I guess. She is the wife. Yes. But she would just take the horses and, and give them back to the Bannock Indian tribes there. So they were going to prevent that. That was away. the story. Yes. And that's what Plummer was supposed to be doing. But Sanders went out to try and find him out to Rattlesnake Ranch, and when he got there, not only was Plummer not there, he had a strange altercation with one of Plummer's deputies, a man named Gallagher. Right. Remember, he's the one who declared the two guys that shot up the first Indian camp, these guys are cleared, let them go, boys. And yes. uh, as a matter of, okay, <laughs> you know, like, you know, he just did it. And then the crowd agreed. The judge later thought that he was probably in on it. Right. So when Sanders got to the Rattlesnake Ranch and started asking about where Plummer was, Gallagher freaked out and seemed like he was maybe going to attack Sanders. Well, and that's then, the story. Yeah. He yeah. pulled out his pistol. Well, according to Sanders, again, this yeah. is recollection and memoirs here. He ducked behind the bar where he saw a shotgun being kept and there's a little bit of a standoff. Gallagher puts his gun down and of course says, well, they, do it. Well, yeah. Know? He puts yeah. a gun down. It tears his jacket open yeah, and right. says, do it. Yeah. A little dramatic. But. but there were two other guys there. Red Yeager was there, who we've yep. mentioned before and we'll talk about in a little bit. And also Bunton, who was co-owner of the ranch. Yes. They were there and they managed to talk everybody down and Gallagher wound up apologizing and offered to buy Sanders a drink. And right. then, you know, the next day Sanders was able to leave without yeah. getting yeah. hurt. But the implication was, was that Gallagher had been specifically instructed to 
head off any problems that might be associated with the fact of Plummer's cover story there you coming go. out there that exactly. night. Exactly. Which there wasn't any need for him to be there. No, and- it's kind of in the opposite direction of where Tilden was. He said he rode on. That's what Plummer said. He rode on past the ranch looking for the lost horse there. Yeah. The other point was if Plummer did rob the 16-year-old boy, it's like, why? Why would they do that? He's clearly well, not going to have any money. Yeah. There's some debate as to... Yeah, what's that? the reasoning? Not the fact that they would rob him, but it was maybe like a road checkpoint. So it's a very strange criminal mystery here, crime mystery going on. A lot of weird clues, not a lot of hard evidence against Plummer, but definitely people are getting robbed. Maybe not the spike in crime spree, crime wave that's being uh, described among the contemporaries of the time, but definitely people are getting robbed and a lot of money's going missing here. We're getting stolen. So case in point, there's a couple of weird ones here. November 22nd, 1863, the stagecoach maintained by the A.J. Oliver Company was robbed on its way back from Virginia City to Bannock. And they only got about $1,000 or less in gold and treasury notes, uh, but that was still a lot of money back then. And one of the robbery victims was Leroy Southmade. And after the robbery, he reported to Sheriff Henry Plummer that he identified some of the road agents as George Ives, Whiskey Bill Graves, I love these names, by the way, Bob Zachary. So Plummer takes the report. However, here's the interesting thing about that. There was a Yale-educated doctor who happened to overhear Southmade making this report to Plummer, and he pulled him aside and took him away from Plummer and said, you got to be careful what you tell the sheriff. And he told him, he said, he might be one of them. Uh You need to think about what you're saying. And Southmade, I guess, ignored him and just went back and kept telling him, this man's name was Bissell. He told Southmade after that, your life is not worth a cent. Now that you've told him. Yeah. Well, guess what? On his way back to Virginia City a couple of these road agents catch up to him. Yeah, and they're not just road agents. They're plumbers' deputies. And they're not just <laughs> well, plumbers' a, deputies. Yeah. They're the really bad ones. Oh. It's Ned Ray and Buck Stinson. And that's they right. informed him they were going to take the ride with him. Mm-hmm. They're going to hop in the stagecoach with him. <laughs> and so he decided that he was going to arm himself. So they're all sitting in the back there holding shotguns yeah. and guns and just riding along. Oh, it's such a pretty day. Wow, what a Tarantino scene. Yeah, it yeah. really is pretty amazing. And I thought about that when we started this series. There's so many things that are happening. And I thought, oh, these Westerns, they're fictionalizing all this stuff. And it's like, no, yeah. a lot of these last words, a lot of yeah. the things people say right before they're hanged, all that stuff, it's really coming right out of reality here. Right, right. And so these guys are all riding in there. And Southmade is trying to defend himself. He's got the shotgun, and the situation escalates. And finally, they tell him, nothing's going to happen to you. And he says, yeah, sure, right. And then they start singing super, super loud at the top of their lungs (laughs) as they're riding along. Uh And they took that to be a signal to any other road agents along the way not to attack the coach. Uh Possibly because they were loaded for bear and ready to shoot anyone if anything happened. And it seemed like maybe it wasn't such a good idea. Uh So you have to wonder, how did they know? Did Plummer tell them? It does start to look that way when you start to look at all of the evidence added together. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. If they get attacked, the deputies have to step in and do their job, or they have to kill everybody, including the stagecoach driver, cover the evidence. Yeah. They don't want any skirmish or friendly fire from their side. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to mention, I think it might have gotten overlooked, but in that first robbery that you were talking about yeah. a few minutes ago, that's the one that had the canteens filled with gold. Uh-huh. And they only got the treasury notes. What they overlooked, yeah. $80,000 
$80,000 in gold dust in the canteens. Yeah. They didn't catch it. That's over a million. I don't know. There was a calculator of like gold dust to dollars here. I'm not sure that we found it. We'll probably have it in the show notes. Yeah. But just figure it's a lot of money. You know, again, we were saying that some things were kind of expensive. So $1.50 for a carton of eggs, that was kind of expensive. They were fresh items. They had to travel a long ways, maybe even from Salt Lake City. You know, other things were a lot cheaper back then. Boots were very expensive, but $80,000... Today, that's a lot of money. Plummer had a Thanksgiving dinner one night, a party. He had some people over, yeah. small, and <laughs> I he can't brought the what turkey that's like. from yeah. Salt Lake City wow. for 40 bucks. It's $40. Back, geez. To bring the turkey from Salt Lake City. For that them. would be several hundred dollars today. And the bottom line is that the crime is spiraling. People yes. are freaking out. It's not quite a territory yet. You've got this justice year, but he doesn't have any power yet. He doesn't know what to do. Right. You've got Plummer, who's probably a crooked sheriff. What are you going to do about him? Yeah. And he's possibly a criminal mastermind, but we don't really know. But he seems to be sharing information with road agents. And maybe he's getting a cut. I have a theory, but I'm going to share later in a minute. But people are getting, not only are they frightened, they're also getting mad. Oh, of course. They're getting ticked off. Yes. They want something to be done. And not that, look, Sheriff Plummer's not Columbo. He's not mounting a uh, really detailed investigation. That's kind of not how it was done back then. You rode around and asked questions, uh, maybe rough some people up, got some answers. There just doesn't seem to be much happening on that front. Now, granted, this is a short period of time. What we said is October through December is this wave of crime here in the, in the coldest months. Again, in November 1863, rancher Conrad Coors was on his way to Bannock from Deer Lodge, Montana, and he had five grand on him in gold dust for a cattle purchase. He turned out to be very successful with the ranching. Anyway, once he arrived in Bannock, Coors spoke with Sheriff Plummer because he was very concerned. He'd been hearing all these stories that he was going to get robbed on the way back to Deer Lodge. And Coors' party was camping one night, and they spotted road agents George Ives and Dutch John Wagner casing the camp. Now, I'm not sure how they recognized these guys, and they they said they were casing the camp armed with shotguns. So a couple of days later... Coors is riding his horse back to Deer Lodge, and he said that Ives and Wagner started chasing him. But he had the faster horse, and he was able to outrun them. Yes. So he goes back to Plummer, and he starts complaining, like, this place is dangerous. These roads are dangerous. And I can't remember if uh, offhand if he had actually lost some money or was complaining about the possibility of losing a lot of money. But this is the weird thing that Conrad Kors says in his memoirs about what Plummer told him. And Plummer said, according to him, well, if you lose some money, if you get robbed, I think I can get some of that back for you. Yeah. (laughs) Like a portion of that back. What? How? Yeah. How is it possible? What a weird thing to say. What a weird thing to make up if you were just making that up for your memoirs. But he's a very well-respected guy. Not that that means anything and lying about your memoirs and your uh, exploits, but just an odd thing. And that's often repeated in history, just an odd thing that Plummer said that was kind of implicating him in some of the activities. So then on December 8th, 1863, road agents George Ives and Alec Carter hold up Anton Holter. And he was taking his oxen to sell in Virginia City. Now, Holter recognized Ives and Carter, and he proved to them that he didn't have anything on him of much value. So they weren't going to rob him, but having recognized them, they tried to shoot him, and he was able to avoid getting shot by scrambling into the brush. Yes, he ran off. He ran, he ran off, so right, saving so his own again, life. Again, Coen Brothers, up in R-U-N-O-F-T. <laughs> <laughs> right. Here's the point about naming these incidents. These people are getting recognized. 
yeah. as members of the town. And as they're getting recognized, people know that Plummer knows them and associates with them or did at one point or has some dealings with them in some way. So again, it's guilt by association, but it makes you wonder, Yeah, why do you have a lot of criminals for friends? Yeah. Why is it, what's the purpose there? So all of this comes to a head and finally, there's some action that must be taken. So in December of 1863, there was a man out hunting named William Palmer who came across the mutilated, frozen body of a young boy named Nicholas Tybalt. And Tybalt had worked for a man known as Old Man Clark, who had sent him away a few days ago to fetch a couple of mules or something and bring them back to him in town. And he never came back. And so Palmer found this boy and it was tragic. He had a bullet hole over his eye. He had rope burns indicating that his body had been dragged to the location it was at. Yeah, he had some minor rope burns around his neck. So somebody just, you know, that's how they drug him into the brush. Yeah. Where William Palmer found him as he was uh, hunting grouse. That immediately was suspicious, of course, but the body was frozen stiff. Yeah, I mean, he had remarked that if it hadn't been frozen, it probably would have been further deteriorated or scavenged. But it was so cold that that had stopped it. And... He saw a couple of guys off in the distance at a hut that he thought maybe could help him get Tybalt's body into his wagon so he could take him into town and report the crime. And he went to talk to them, and their attitude was essentially, it's not our problem. And they... Yeah, weren't even curious. Yeah. Not very helpful. You deal with that. That's your business. So immediately, William Palmer gets a really bad feeling that yeah. these guys know something about it or did it themselves. And he hustles the body as best he can into the wagon and gets out of there as fast as he can. Right. So he heads back to Nevada City, which, by the way, is about 70 miles from Sheriff Plummer's domain. And everyone comes out to see this boy. A lot of them knew him. And one towns member even came out and retrieved a knife from his pocket that he had given him. And that was a way to confirm that it was who it was. Right. And people got pretty upset. And old man Clark decided he was going to put a posse together. And he wasn't too interested in talking to Sheriff Plummer about it because people weren't trusting Henry Plummer at this point too much. Anymore. Right. Well, not only were they not trusting him, again, because of the connections they knew to some of these guys, yeah, he hung out with a few of them. So that caused distrust. Also, there didn't seem to be much action or results done with all the other robberies and crimes going on yeah. from Plummer. Right. And they had come to the conclusion that George Ives was responsible for the crime. Ives, you may remember, we talked about him in part one, was kind of a bad drunk, apparently. He would ride his horse backwards into saloons and get drinks <laughs> right. when he was having drinks and known to be kind of a rough man. Yeah. And he also owned a ranch. And because it was near where Tybalt was found, they said, well, you know, we're going to go get him. We're going to bring him in and he's going to stand trial for this. He also was thought to have committed several other crimes. And right. there were a lot of things kind of pointing to him. So this was an excuse to go get him. Yeah. So they put the posse together and they went to get him and they started to bring him back. And one of the weird things that happened is on the way back, he was actually pretty jovial and riding along with them. And they were talking about their horses. And then he challenged a couple of the posse members to a race. Then they put the horses into a gallop to race for fun and everybody's having fun and then he just kept going. He tried to get <laughs> yeah, away. Right. Well, there but, you go. Yeah. <laughs> but he did not get away. No. They caught him. So they wound up tying him up and bringing him in. Yeah. But that was, you know, hey, everything's great. I'll see you later. <laughs> and uh, they brought him in. Yeah. And 
when they brought him back to town, they decided that there needed to be a trial to determine whether or not he was guilty of killing Nicholas Tybalt. And they put this system together. They had a judge, yeah. and it wasn't a regular trial. They had a couple of juries. Do you know more about well, this? They, it's they more went into a crowd and then yeah. a, two jury advisory jury panels, I believe. Right. Yeah. It's more structured like what we talked about before as a minor's court. Yes. So there is a not a judge who's been elected. At the moment, he's been being elected as to preside over the proceedings, but not exactly how you think of a, a judge today, yeah. you know, with years of law study and, and all that. So it was a three-day long public trial held in Virginia City from December 19th to the 21st in 1863. And Judge Byam is presiding over the trial, which has a lot of that same group jury aspect of it. People shouting things, hang him, let him go, extend the trial, this and that. So, yes. And they try and weigh a lot of these group feelings about uh, how to proceed. And the reluctant prosecutor in this case is Wilbur Sanders, who is Sidney Edgerton's nephew, the chief justice, who didn't want to participate in the case because he had said he hadn't been sworn in. Again, he's sort of hiding behind the fact that his department and his position is not fully organized. Right, yet. and letting it play out to see how they fall before he really steps in and asserts himself. Right, and Sanders is pretty nervous about going up against Ives. And the other thing that Ives is doing, and I guess he had plenty of money because he was hiring every other lawyer in town. There was no one left <laughs> yeah, right. to even prosecute. So yeah. Sanders was forced to prosecute Ives. And it's a little scary because Ives is considered one of the big bosses of the bad guys. Yeah, Sanders is afraid that if he prosecutes him and he gets executed, they're coming after him. And he did get some flack from it, armed flack, and had his life threatened. So rightfully so, he's pretty scared to do this. So he was kind of remembered throughout history as reluctant, but he did his duty, and so he's respected for that at least, because you are taking your life in your own hands. Right, and so the jury was just out, I guess, of 30 minutes or so, and they came back with a verdict, but it wasn't unanimous. There was one man, Henry Spivey, who had said of all the charges brought against Ives, which it wasn't just for Tybalt, it was for several of the other crimes and murders that we mentioned earlier in the show that he was connected to, he felt that there was not significant proof that he had murdered Tybalt himself. Right. And so one of the measures that we have today is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And not many people seem to think that that had been achieved. However, there was enough. There was enough. Yeah. And there was a groundswell, a sentiment of it's time to put a stop to everything that's been going on. The highway robberies now, we have a child who's been murdered and left out in the cold. And so Sanders, he was afraid there was going to be an announcement of a mistrial. So he sort of redirected it and he said, look, this is a guilty verdict. Right. So Ives was sentenced to death by hanging. Interesting tidbit here. Again, it's people saying things and then having other folks who are in charge start to form opinions strongly one way or the other, even if they start off in doubt. One note here is that William Pemberton, who was a young lawyer acting as the court reporter, I've spoke to him briefly, and I've said he regretted that he could not cut his own throat or poison himself to avoid the shame of being hanged. Yeah, because being stigma. Absolutely. As your own history goes down in, in people's memories, being lynched for being a murderer and a robber, that's how people are going to remember you. And yeah. people thought about that as they were about to die. So, And that's how he's in the book here. Exa well, <laughs> exactly. Well, Pemberton at that point, he was doubting eyes because of the flimsy cases of evidence against him for this particular crime. As Spivey said, yeah, he's probably most likely a stagecoach robber, but is he a murderer in this case? I'm not so sure. So he did his duty as a juror and he stood up to the other jurors. So right now... Pemberton, the young court reporter, is thinking eh, he probably did it. 
Right. And when Ives finds out that he's to be hanged, he makes the following statement to Sanders, his prosecutor. I am a gentleman, and I believe you are, and I want to ask a favor which you alone can grant. If our places were changed, I know I would grant it to you, and I believe you will to me. I've been pretty wild away from home, but I have a mother and sisters in the States, and I want you to get this execution put off till tomorrow morning. I will give you my word and honor as a gentleman that I will not undertake to escape nor permit my friends to try to change this matter. And not too long after that, the crowd starts murmuring. There's a whole, there's a crowd involved here. Yeah. And there's <laughs> right. lots of discussion going on. And then this man named John Xavier Beedler, who was known as X among That's all of the people perfect. in yeah. town, simply yelled out, ask him how long he gave the Dutchman, referring to Nicholas Teibel. Right. Before so, he killed him. Yeah, yeah, before he killed him. And that reminded the crowd of what Ives had theoretically done. Yeah. And so putting off the execution wasn't really happening at this point. Right. So they strung him up, and when they did, Judge Byam asked Ives if he had any final words, and apparently he said, I am innocent of this crime. Then he added, Alec Carter killed the Dutchman. Right, one of the other road agent associates. And Ives asked to speak to Frank before he was actually hanged, and Judge Byam refused. Frank was one of the two guys that refused to help put Nicholas on the wagon. So then you're wondering why, because right up until this, they've been arguing, his lawyers have been arguing otherwise. It's a kind of a deathbed confession here. And so a lot of people put a lot of weight in that. Was Ives being framed by these other guys? He may have wanted to square that with Frank or talk to him one last time, but no such luck. That's right. And the last thing that he heard was someone calling out a phrase that became famous among the vigilantes going forward. Men, do your duty. And they kicked the box out from under his feet, and he fell, and his neck snapped. Judge Byam went over to him and said, his neck is broken. He is dead. And that marked the end of George Ives and the beginning of the Montana vigilante movement. Yes. And two days after the trial of George Ives on December 23rd, 1863, the town leaders of Virginia City and Bannock formed the Vigilance Committee of Alder Gulch in Virginia City. They are now formally somewhat trying to organize this into a roundup of men. So among the city leaders of this Vigilance Committee, you have Wilbur Sanders, who was the prosecutor, reluctantly. And then you had people like Major Alvin Brocky, John Nye, Captain Nick Wall, and Paris Fouts, who's one of the main guys, it turns out, for this vigilance committee. He's, yes. You know, he winds up being the big cheese, one of the big cheeses. Okay, so their first order of business is that they form a posse to go looking for Whiskey Bill Graves, Alec Carter, and Bill Bunton, who were associates known of George Ives. And they get Captain James Williams to head the posse. Now, he's Alan believes in his book that Nobody really knows who said, men do your duty. And it's such a famous phrase that, but probably it was Captain James Williams because he was the captain of the guard at the proceedings for the hanging. So that's a good guess. Yes. Who uttered the phrase to uh, the commanding phrase that lives on forever here. And he was also the one who investigated the murder of Nicholas Tebolt. So the posse eventually rounds up Erastus Red Yeager, he gets rounded up, and George Brown near the Rattlesnake Ranch on the Ruby River. Now, remember, the Rattlesnake Ranch is kind of a hangout. That's where the road agents were thought to be organizing out of, and that was the ranch that Bunton was co-owner of as well. Right, and both Yeager and Brown were suspected heavily of being active road agents. And while under arrest, Erastus Red Yeager gives out his famous confession list, naming all the members of the underground network of road agents, and most famously, Sheriff Henry Plummer. That's right. He said, I know I'm going to die. I'm going to be hanged. 
It is pretty rough, but I merited this years ago. What I wanted to say is that I know all about the gang, and there are men in it that deserve this more than I do. But I should die happy if I could see them hanged or know that it would be done. According to Thomas Dimsdale, who was there, one of the posse responded, You know, Red, men have been shot down in broad daylight, not for the money or even for the hatred, but for luck, and it must be put a stop to. So at that point, Jaeger agrees to make a full confession. I want to read this straight from Alan's book. Jaeger made a full and damning confession and provided a list of the alleged members of a tightly knit organization of highway robbers. The leader was Henry Plummer, he said. And the second in command was Bill Bunton, the half-owner of the Rattlesnake Ranch. Bunton's partner, Frank Parrish, was part of the criminal enterprise, as were two dozen other men, some whose names were familiar. Cyrus Skinner, the saloon keeper at the Elkhorn, which you might remember had also been in San Quentin with Plummer. That's right. George Ives and Plummer's deputies, Stenson and Ray, who were the two guys that rode in that stagecoach and sang really loud to prevent it from being robbed. Right, and were uh, dogging a lot of people in town to see what the movement was, Tracking acting very people. suspicious. Yes. Yeah, stalking. Yeah. And stalking. the only reason they prevented that one robbery is because the gentleman inside had shotguns. He said that others were obscure and some were simply known by aliases, including one guy named Mexican Frank. Jaeger said the men associated with Doc Howard were also involved. Those were the guys who killed Magruder that we mentioned earlier. Not actually a doctor. As Jaeger recited the names of the conspirators, Williams had a member of the posse write them down. Then, most remarkably, Jaeger volunteered that the group used a secret phrase for identity, I am innocent, and recognized each other by use of a special sailor's knot on their neckties and by shaving their mustaches and goatees in a unique pattern. These last details, so compellingly specific at first glance, have provided historians with an insurmountable challenge in the decades since Dimsdale's account first appeared in print. Allen goes on to state, they simply do not ring true. Why would the members of a small band of highwaymen have used special signs to recognize each other? Why would they have advertised common cause by the use of distinctive facial hair or neckwear or any other signal? Why would they have had a password? And if they did, why would it be the odd phrase, I'm innocent? In recent years, many a thoughtful observer has been moved to ask if Red Jaeger actually spilled the beans on a genuine criminal operation and offered up the minutiae of their code of behavior, or if something quite different, something much less explicit and damning actually occurred on that night. So Alan makes a good point. It doesn't make sense. Right. Again, and we joked a little bit about this. Well, it's very before. dramatic. And if you're going to have all these special handshakes and a beard and a <laughs> yeah. necktie and all this stuff is happening, it's like, well, you're pretty easy to pick out of a crowd yeah, at see, that point. Right. That's more KGC fair. Yeah. Because you don't know who the other members are that you might come across or you could trust. Right. Now, if this is a network, wouldn't they know each other or most of them? Unless, you know, they were claiming, the vigilantes at least, that this was a far-flung network reaching into Idaho, into Lewiston, possibly uh, Wyoming. It was happening all over. So these stories are growing and growing as they're happening, as this time period in uh, the late fall and winter of 1863 is unfolding. These rumors are growing. And so it sounds like, is this just a collective memory here? And Dimsdale and Langford are just embellishing it for just the sake of the story. It sounds great. And also yeah. it's very specific, like you said. But there's some arguments back and forth, like people would say nowadays, well, Red Yeager was just trying to name everybody because that's what he thought the Vigilance Committee wanted to hear to spare his own life. I can sum up pretty well that I don't think there's any possibility in his mind that he was going to get spared. No, he so knew was he was it, done for. Exactly. However, it is my opinion, and this is speculation based on the research that we've done. It's my own personal opinion. Yeah. 
But I think it's entirely possible that the vigilantes already had a list of people that they wanted to hang. Yeah. And the best way they could do that is to say that they got a confession from someone and they wrote down all the names and then they hang that guy who can't say anything else about it later. Yeah. And then they go out and get everybody else and hang them too with this list that has been blessed by one of the bad guys. Right. That's it, why the yeah. details seem, because it sounds a whole lot like a made up confession. It sounds like a plant. Well, the you thing know. is, he may have actually named some names, but the name list may have been added to conveniently right. for them. it's not enough. Well, we know if Plummer did, we know that this other guy was involved, so yeah. then they just start expanding the list. It's like any group. Then you get into this sort of mob mentality of the vigilantes, which does devolve into some pretty bad situations, which we're going to talk about here in a second. But it's the whole idea of like, you know what? It wasn't just that guy. It was this guy, too. Let's make our list of all the people we want to go away. Well, yeah, you know? it makes it efficient. It's in one big sweep, which is kind of what happened because 20 to 21 men were hanged in this spree. Well, the outcome was that Jaeger and Brown were found guilty and they were hanged from a cottonwood tree on the Lorraine's Ranch on the Ruby River. So next up is Dutch John Wagner. You may remember him as one of the guys who bungled the robbery, the stagecoach robbery, and he got wounded. And he was found and he still had the bullet hole wound. He claimed that he rolled over on his pistol near the oh, fire right. and it went off. And that's how he got it. Well, this is pretty strong evidence, at least against him. Yeah. And that was... And they, by the way, they did a test on that and nothing happened. They, <laughs> right. They, they put, put a gun in a fire the whole nine yards. And, yeah. It didn't yeah. really go off right yeah. away. But so at he, least they investigated it a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. So yeah. there's a little bit being done, but not much. And that's pretty damning evidence. And that was the Moody Wagon Train robbery on the Salt Lake City Trail, along with Steve Marshland. And that was back in December. So Captain Nick Wall of the Vigilance Committee and Ben Peabody round those guys up, and they took them back to Bannock, and they hanged them on January 11th. So now Henry Plummer's time has come. His number has come up, and people are ready to go get him. And this is a very thing that he feared when in California there was a vigilante movement much earlier that he had been around to witness, and he wasn't comfortable with it. He didn't like the idea of it. He wasn't, right. but maybe that's because he's the perfect guy to get picked up by a <laughs> well, vigilante crowd. Exactly. Yeah. You have to wonder about that. Yeah, you do have to wonder about it. But that's what's happening now is it, it seems that he's been found out. And so they set out to go round up not only Plummer, but also Buck Stinson and Ned Ray, who were the two deputies that everyone pretty much knew for sure were road agents yeah. that worked with Plummer. So it didn't look good for him. So the vigilante committee set out to go find those three guys. Before they hanged Dutch John Wagner, he'd also kind of given a confession and again, they kind of know these are sketchy. So it wasn't totally unanimous about rounding up Sheriff Plummer because he is the sheriff still. They knew what they were doing and they knew the implications of it. And so Wilbur Sanders, the prosecutor, wasn't fully convinced that everybody is going to be on his side here. So he was extra nervous. Yeah. But the feeling was is that this had to be done because if you didn't, then it's going to be a real mess. If you didn't act on this and people start weighing in and the town's 50-50 on this, Plumber flees. There could be a lot of scenarios that were just bad, maybe even worse than bringing to justice somebody who wasn't 100% guilty, yeah. maybe 80%. Right. But that's not how it's supposed to work. So Sanders and Edgerton, who basically feel this needs to happen and convince the Bannock vigilantes to move and act on Plumber, they finally bring in Tilden. Remember that? The young boy. Yes. Who was the one who claimed he saw Plummer hold him up, you know, check his identity, that kind of thing. And he recognized the pistol and the lining, the red lining of Plummer's coat. That's right. This is Edgerton's friend of the family. Yeah, he traveled with them out from Ohio. Yeah. And they'd been telling him to keep quiet yeah. this whole time because, again, this is a pretty inflammatory, you know, statement there. They bring him in as a convincing point, and it seems to work finally, at least with the story of the lining of the coat. That's a little bit better than the, I recognize his pistol in a snowstorm. Yeah. <laughs> but it does 
have a convincing ring at this point. So then remember the scene here is that as the, and this is happening in the wee hours of the morning overnight, this has to happen fast and overnight, and it's freezing out. His friend, Francis Thompson, Plummer's friend, remember, who traveled out with him from Sun River, he's staying at the Vale house, James Vale's house, along with Plummer. Yes. And he knows what's going on, and he knows that he's going to be rounded up. So that's a pretty tense breakfast that morning. Yeah. Because he knows that evening they're going to come for him. And what's he going to say? He has to play dumb. These people still like Plummer. He was still a very likable guy by a lot of friends who knew him, who even had doubts. So they weren't sure about this. It wasn't, it wasn't set in stone. So he's thinking, should I warn Plummer so he can escape? Or do I keep silent? Because that's a fraction of justice that has to happen, but it has to happen. So he's torn up inside. And what he does, though, is he keeps silent about it. He does not warn Plummer to escape. Right. And the day passes. So now back with Wilbur Sanders and Sidney Edgerton, they're discussing what's going to happen. How's this going to play out? And they go to his store and sit around the fire. And of course, Stinson and Ned Ray are poking him because they're getting word and they're getting very nervous that something's happening. And you can probably guess that they maybe feel a little guilty. So as the day progresses, there's this very quiet, palpable buzz. You can cut the tension with a knife. And by about noon on that Sunday, January 10th, 1864, Sanders and Lot had rounded up and deputized a bunch of men. So about 50, maybe to even 70 men. They were also trying to gain support for this movement to do this. Because again, the town's kind of divided. More probably in that they suspected Plummer of something, but not ready to go to the hanging part of it. Right. So these men proceed to go to the Vale cabin and surround it. Now, Plummer had been sick for a few days in bed with chronic lung problems and tuberculosis, so he wasn't feeling real well. But people knew that he always had his large knife and a gun on him. A lot of times he took it to bed with him. But being in bed for that long, he'd had them hanging up. Yeah, he'd taken them off that particular night. Exactly. So nobody knows, but And he was some... a quick draw. It yeah. Was, not he, everybody right. was. In fact, Crawford wasn't who shot him in the arm and in the back. The part of the reason that he did that was because he knew he wasn't a good shot and he was afraid of facing Plummer because Plummer had a reputation for being a good shot. Exactly. So they don't know who, but some well-known citizen, it was said, went up to the door, knocked on it. Martha Jane Vale, the wife of James Vale, answers the door. They rush past her. Plummer's lying in bed. Everyone's freaking out. The family's freaking out because why are you taking him? Well, Plummer knows And he tries to soothe her by saying he has to go take care of some business about Dutch John being captured. That was his excuse. So he's taken into custody without incident. And so is Buck Stinson. And then they go to round up Ned Ray at a saloon where he was passed out on a gaming table. Yeah. That was an easy capture and he's kind of groggy, but he's getting the picture as well. Right. So now the group all goes out to the gallows on the edge of town where Pummler had also built that gallows. Yeah, for Peter Horn with the two miners who had gotten in the fight and he wound up hanging Peter Horn shortly before he left town to go retrieve Electa just a few months ago. Exactly. That was back in August. So ironically, now Plummer's about to be hanged on his own gallows. Yeah. So along the way, Plummer, you know, he's keeping his composure, but he's also begging to be able to speak to his sister-in-law For one last time, he wants to be able to go see his wife and put his affairs in order, and he still has business he wants to do. Like anybody else who gets dragged out of bed, you know, he wants to arrange his affairs, and they're not having it. They just march him to the gallows. As they're marching him up to the gallows, there was a young man who came running up to him and hugged him and was crying and begging for him to be spared, if that doesn't break your heart right there. Some kid, I guess, who probably thought he was pretty cool. By the way, I want to say something just quickly about... Henry Tilden recognizing Plummer's gun in the snowstorm. Right, right. I don't know, obviously, anything about what it's like to be a teenage kid in the 1800s, but 
I can tell you that when I was Henry Tilden's age, I could tell you what kind of car was going down the road by <laughs> one taillight from a half mile away. Sure. And I can see where a kid that age who might have a fascination with guns and that sort of thing might have known exactly that it really was Plummer's gun that night, even right. though people discounted it. Exactly. There are various models of pistols of the time. And yeah, and if you're a kid, like that's a, what you're into. You catalog exactly. that kind of stuff when you're a little boy. So I did want to come back and point that out. Nobody really talks about that in, in the stuff that we read. But anyway, this boy comes and is begging for Plummer to be spared. And they pulled him away. Plummer at this time was asking for a chance to see his wife again. He was praying. He knew his time on this earth was drawing to a close. Exactly. And he was offering to leave the country. He was saying, this is not justified. I'll just leave. How's that? You know, banishment was another option, but probably the second option, because again, you weren't spending years in jail. And to no effect, he was led to the gallows. The commander of the guard, John Lott, called for Ned Ray to be brought forward. And he had bought revived at this point from his drunken, passed out stupor. Yeah. And one Madam Hall... Talk about sobering up. <laughs> that'll do it. He had a, a lady, Madam Hall. I don't know if she's a madam, madam. Yeah. Maybe. She was openly weeping and causing a fuss. It's a circle of people. So she's out there begging for his life and they move her aside and what happens is that they do this pretty quickly. They're not waiting around. The guards put a noose around Ray's neck and lift him as high as they could and were going to drop him. But what happened was in the split second, he slipped his hand underneath the noose. Yes. So as he was falling, it didn't snap his neck. Basically, it just strangled him to death, which was, that's lynching. If your neck doesn't snap right away, you end up strangling. And that's why they call them the Stuart Stranglers, Granville Stewart. A lot of people who are opposed to this method of execution thought it was pretty cruel because you kind of dangle there for a few minutes gasping for breath. It's pretty grisly. So it took him several minutes to die. Stinson was hanged next cleanly. So that went quickly. And then it was Plummer's turn. And Alan writes during this time that Plummer was getting awfully alarmed, as I imagine one would be. And he was walking around inside this circle formed by the vigilantes, begging people that he knew to help him saying again, like, look, this is not fair, and I'll just leave. How's that? You don't have to kill me. This doesn't have to happen. And he sees his good friend George Chrisman, the owner of the store, who let him have the desk in there to operate his business, his sheriff matters in the store. He says, please intervene. Do something about this. And Chrisman replied sternly, no, Henry, we can't do anything for you. Now, according to Francis Thompson, Stinson offered to confess just before he died, and Plummer stopped him saying bitterly, We've done enough already to send us all to hell, which is the quote we had from the beginning of the show. And then Plummer just asked for a good drop, and he mouthed a prayer, and he died instantly. One thing to note here, Thompson was not an eyewitness to the execution. He was still at the Edgerton's house because he didn't want to see his friend die. And then you got to wonder, where did he hear that? Now, I tend to believe Francis Thompson because he's not as dramatic or sensational, I guess, as some of the other chroniclers of the time. So it's another strange thing because, again, that implicates a little bit of guilt there, that statement. Right. So that's the end of Henry Plummer. Yes. And it, it, physically. Physically. Yeah. His legend lives on to this day. And yeah. there's still a long transition here between what the events that brought about his death and the vigilantes and when they pass from history. It goes on for another good year, year and a half. Because at this point, they had hanged a few people, but it worked out to be 21 in a short period of time. And then over the long haul, they killed over 57 people. And Well, some counts getting into 130 
plus. Yeah, so yeah. It varies, and most of it's recorded. Some not very well, though. But it's the same thing they said about the crimes that the road agents committed, because there was one character in this story, Hattie, who I believe was uh, Sidney Edgerton's wife, who had said, well, they must have killed 102 people, the bad guys. Yeah. If you look at all the people that disappeared on the wagon trails that were never reported and or right. didn't show up, and there's definitely a lot of loose facts in terms of how many people were killed. But the culmination of these events is that these vigilantes decided that they were going to take matters into their own hands because not because they were taking that power from the law, but because there wasn't any really law and what law they did have seemed to be part of the problem. Yes. And they felt like they had no choice. But the sad thing is that on the other side of this, the vigilantes started to take more devolved types of actions. In one case in particular, there was a man named Jose Pizantia who the very next day after Plummer was hanged was brutally murdered by a mob. It's really the only way you can say it. And he was kind of a town drunk, and the reasons as why they went after him were pretty vague. But they went to his house, and when they went in, they were banging on the door and yelling for him to come out. And he was, I'm not coming out. And they go in, and he fires a shot, and then just Well, well that, yeah, that didn't, I mean, it didn't look good for him anyway. And there's a fair amount of racism. They called him the greaser yeah. at the time. Yeah, which is horrible. And it, So they were not great. I can understand this both ways, because they come to round him up, and two of the vigilantes, Smith Ball and George Copley go to the door, shove it open, and they get shot by Byzantia. Yeah. Right. So Copley gets shot in the chest and Ball gets shot in the hip. That seals the deal right there. Yeah, but prior to that, he was in his house minding his own business. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. As you see it, it's an excuse to round up everybody they thought was undesirable. Right. In the region. So here you go. Do it fast before anybody can really mount a defense for anything and take care of business as they saw it. Well, then they get into this whole big gun battle, and they decide that they need a big weapon. And everybody knows about the howitzer that the Fisk expedition left with Sidney Edgerton, the chief justice. They knew he had it under his bed, so they went to borrow that. And Edgerton comes out and says, oh, they're going to shoot the howitzer, and comes to see. They start unloading the howitzer into Jose's house, at which point Edgerton is like, I would like to be the future governor. I should not be here. And he turns and leaves, seeing what a horrible scene it is. Effectively, they kill Jose. Then they bring him outside and burn his body. Well, first they fill him full of bullet holes. They, kept, yeah. they just kept shooting him. Shooting him and shooting him and shooting him. That's right. And over 100 people shot him. This angry mob is shooting him. Then they burn his body on a fire. And then after that, they went through it looking for gold. They went through the remains, trying to see if there was any gold dust, of which there was none. So... There were a lot of actions that took place with the vigilantes, but even later on down the road, there was a gentleman who'd been banished and sent out into the harsh winter and I believe got frostbite and actually wound up losing a limb or two. He came back and wrote a nasty letter, probably a letter to the editor or something, <laughs> right. about the vigilantes. They came and hanged him. Yeah. After yeah. like four guys stood in a room and did, I'm doing air quotes here, handwriting analysis. They were overheard saying, yep, looks like a match, looks like a match. They took the guy out and hung him. They didn't even really know if it was a match, but either way, they're also just hanging him for writing a letter that says they stink. Right, right. So it just got really bad. And as the government expanded in the area and Abraham Lincoln made Montana into a territory, not a state, it didn't become a state for 25 more years, but they made it into a territory. Then the framework started to be in place for a normal kind of court system, but it still took a long time for all that to take hold. And the vigilantes were ordered to stand down. And they kind of did, but they also kind of didn't. It took a while. There was a long overlap. If you think of a DJ playing two songs, I would say the, the crossfade <laughs> the lasted beats about are not yeah, matching. The, the yeah. crossfade lasted about twelve months. Okay. So. <laughs> 
It was bad, but the overall scene, that's the legacy of everything that happened with the Montana vigilantes and Henry Plummer. And yeah, it's, it's two phrases here. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And who gets to write the narrative? The people yeah. left standing. Well, and here's the interesting thing about that. A lot of the information that we have in the photos that you will see on our website and on other websites we'll direct you to in the show notes are all courtesy of the Montana Historical Society, which is a really amazing place, part of the government in Montana, started by pretty much the founding members of the Montana Vigilantes. Yeah, right. They well, started yeah. it back then. Yeah. So they were setting that narrative down way back then. And to this day, yeah. the idea of what they did is somewhat revered in Montana right. as a way to take care of crime. And you can certainly say that, well, things were out of control and no one else was around to enforce it. They got a little bit out of control with regard to how they were enforcing it. Right. But I think locally, they're revered in, well, historically. Like we, what we talked but about they earlier. they also wrote that history. Right. So. It's what we talked about earlier. The mentality of the area and Westerners in general, and some people will call it you know, the law and order crowd or, as we said before, Texas justice. But the feeling is the same, is we have to do something. Right. We're not going to put up with this any longer. And we have no federal government mandate or orders or instructions to do anything. So we're going to take the law into our own hands to a degree. It's very flimsy. And they try to establish at least some kind of order, like with the minors' courts and trials. But again, for expediency, let's just get to the point. Yeah. And we know who's responsible. Let's just take care of this. There's a lot of questions to this day about whether or not Henry Plummer was actually guilty. And having looked at all the evidence and having read the books that we've read and done the research that we've gotten, and by the way, it's hard to get to the root of what's happened here because there's a lot of confirmation bias on all sides of this story. Although we found that Frederick Allen's book, A Decent Orderly Lynching, The Montana Vigilantes, was the most even-keeled one we could find. He took a very yes. unbiased approach. He looked at all sides of it. And we wanted to talk to him personally about his perspective on it after having done all those years of research and writing such a fascinating book about it. So we reached out to him for an interview. And much to our surprise, he said yes. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're always surprised when someone as smart and well-educated as he is agrees to take our call. <laughs> well, I don't always take Scott's calls. Hey, no, I, frankly, I can't blame you. <laughs> anyway, it was yeah. one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done, and we're excited to share it with you. He's a highly entertaining guy, and he gives us a great perspective, not only on the story of Henry Plummer and the Montana vigilantes, but also the origins of a mystic number often associated with them, 3777. To this day, it can be seen on the patches of all Montana State Highway patrolman, and some folks will tell you that no one really knows what it means, but Rick Allen is pretty sure he figured it out, and he's going to talk about that in our next episode. In the meanwhile, what I would say is that I'm not convinced that Plummer was the ringleader. I think it's possible he was the ringleader. It's right, exactly. It's, and he went on a journey from a young guy setting out to the West to then he winds up getting in these altercations. He's killed four or five people before he even gets to Bannock. Right. But you can look at each story and be like, well, it's not like he's John Wesley Harden and he's just shooting people for snoring. <laughs> you know, he's getting into these things. You got to admit, he was pushed a little far in some cases. Maybe, sure. you know, by Jack Cleveland or whoever. That seems a little bit kind of standard for the right. time. You got to right. take care of yourself. You got to defend yourself. No, that's what we're saying. If you get into drinking and hanging out at the saloons, there's going to be an altercation like there is today. Yeah. If you hang out in those places people get drunk and violent. And Henry was no different. When he started drinking, he had a violent streak. By the time he was 32, 
he'd killed five men by gunshot or blunt force, as Alan states here, and he had a violent streak. And as Alan writes here, no reasonable person in the gold camps of Montana could be faulted for being frightened of him. His failure to enforce the law during a serious crime wave, especially when he had proven himself so adept at capturing fugitives in his earlier career, stands as a harsh indictment. His use of Stinson and Ray's deputies, one a killer and the other a convicted mule thief and prison escapee, incriminates him as well. It is hard to lament his death. No one could say for sure if Plummer was demonstrably guilty of a set of specific crimes. But this is not the real issue. The real issue was whether the men who executed him could have afforded to take more time to gather evidence and conduct a proceeding more closely resembling a conventional trial than the hasty, secret tribunal that took place in confusion over a sleepless night and ended in a hanging. Yeah. Well, so there you go. That's well pretty well summed up. I guess in my mind, I think it's entirely possible that Plummer, I had an idea that he had a different position in the organization. And I haven't said this well, to you, but uh, yeah? my idea is that the reason he was in Chrisman's store, he happened to be sheriff, yes, but I think, yeah, he was in there eavesdropping. I think he was the guy that got the information about where and when, and I think he took a cut it doesn't seem to me like he was necessarily orchestrating everything. Well, no, as far as mastermind is concerned, what is masterminding? It's just like, hey, I heard this guy's laden down with $12,000 in gold dust. He's going to be leaving two days from now yeah. and heading to Salt Lake City to the south. So be on the road. They get you where it's pinched off. The wagons have to make a tight turn or something where you're slowed down and they could pounce from above or pop out from uh, the scenery there. Yeah. So maybe he was just tipping them off and getting a little cut. Which just... would have put someone else in It's like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the movie, who's the leader of this year out <laughs> And And that's yeah. the real question. Right. Who was the leader? I would posit that it's possible that somebody else was in charge, like George Ives or Alec Carter. In the end, they all hanged, so yeah. it doesn't matter. Well, that, the and that's run. the view, that's probably the view of the vigilantes. Like, yeah. you know, as, Hang as them you said, well, probably guilty of something. Yeah. Good enough. And these road agents, instead of a complicated network reaching different territories now, Idaho into Montana and even the Washington Territory, they may have been operating just as themselves in groups of two or three. And they knew each other as friends, but it wasn't like they were all coordinating. Yeah. To tap these. Look, you knew that in the winter when people were done working the mines and the placers for the summer, that they were laden with gold as they're heading back. So it's an opportune time. And so that explains the rush of activity and the spike from October to November and December, even into the cold weather. So does that require a mastermind? Probably not. But they may have been connected and telling each other what was happening and coordinating a little. But yes, as far as Mastermind is concerned, Henry Plummer, it looks like, definitely knew these guys and maybe turned a blind eye when he suspected one or several or a lot of them were doing these things and didn't really follow up on it very carefully or quickly. Oh, and the next question becomes, what happened to his take? Well, of course, there's a buried treasure angle on this story. There has to be. And there is one with Henry Plummer because immediately after he was hanged, Prospectors in the area all suspected that he and the innocents or some portion of them all had a buried cache or several caches of all this gold dust. The innocents. That's the, that's the, the Red Jaeger's made-up name for them, in my opinion. But, right. But we'll call them that. It does point to the question, a valid one, where did all that gold dust and coins and treasury notes go? I mean, yeah, they were spending it in the saloons a little bit, but that's a lot to spend over that time. So it's out there somewhere. Well, according to a local historian, Jim Edwards, two mysterious gold hunters may have found something in the early 1900s. They went into the local store that had the vault, much like Christmas store, maybe it was that, 
and they asked if they could leave a strong box in there all night. And one of the men stayed to guard it all night, you know, with a shotgun. And the next morning, both of them disappeared with their strong box, and nobody knew who they were, where they went, or what they had dug up. And of course, there's people still to this day looking. There's two local men, a treasure hunter, Bill Jappy, said he and his partner are confident that the gold is out there somewhere and they've been searching for it. And one theory I always heard was uh, nearby Mount Baldy as a likely suspect. Maybe Electa Brian Plummer had some knowledge of it. Of course, she lived you know, much longer after he did, and I think people were asking her about it. Yeah, she remarried and had several kids. Never, yeah. never had a kid by Plummer, by the way. She was not pregnant when she fled no. town. But there's a couple legendary little bits of information that are fun in an Old West legend like this. And two of these deal with what were Henry Plummer's last words and wishes or actions. And one of them is kind of fun because people claim that Henry Plummer said, hey, if you give me a horse in two hours, I'll come back with my weight in gold of that buried treasure. And of course, they said, no way. We can't let you out of our sight. They weren't interested in the treasure, which seems strange, of recouping some of that money. And they just hanged him. So that's one legend. The other one was his last words being, you can't hang me, I'm too wicked to die. Yeah. Which is weird. Wait, is that a boast? Or is that just a weird thing of like, I'm impossible to kill because I'm too wicked. Yeah. And not a, and just kind of a plea. Yeah. So I'd always heard that growing up as being his last words, but I'm not sure that And that's you grew true. up in somewhere in that general vicinity. That's my region. Yeah. yeah. The, the, I, we we could say the Idaho, the, uh, the Idaho Territory. How's that? Yeah. Or, you know, Washington or Montana Territories as right. they stand now. So I've been there. It's really fascinating. It's a great place to visit. If you're ever on a road trip, Stop by Bannock and Virginia City and Alder Gulch and uh, Beaverhead Rock. It's a beautiful country. The town of Bannock is, there's a lot to it. Unlike a lot of ghost towns where it's just a few timbers and maybe a floor plan where a cabin was, there are a lot of buildings standing. You can go and see these actual buildings and it really does bring history to life. And I wish I knew then what I now know about the story. Well, on this final note, on May 7th, 1993, Sheriff Henry Plummer received a new trial. The Twin Bridges Public School District requested a posthumous retrial. It was presided over by Judge Barbara Brooke with 12 registered voters who made up the jury. The verdict was split six to six. That would be a mistrial. Well, he may have walked out a free man or he may have been retried, but this symbolic verdict effectively sums up the life and the legend of Henry Plummer in that six people found him innocent and six people found him guilty. <laughs> Well, that's going to wrap up part two of our series on Henry Plummer. We're dark next week for our live appearance in Detroit, but we'll be back the week after that with a fascinating interview with author and historian Frederick Allen. We'd like to thank The Great Courses Plus, Blue Apron, and Upside.com for sponsoring the show, as well as our wonderful patrons at Patreon.com. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. Hi. Hi, I'm Aaron. I'm Mindy Dahl. I'm Chris Amel, and, and I, I give permission, permission to Astonishing Legends, Legends to use my voice however they, they see fit. fit. Galaxy-wide Galaxy and, and in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google Plus, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. <laughs>